want to go to there. Snipe! Saw the window and I just couldn't resist it. Francie doesn't like coffee ice cream. Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes. Thirty Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's a cunning plan, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, play hearts, keep Hello and welcome to the Televerse, Sound Unsights TV podcast. This is Kate Kalzik and I'm joined as ever by Simon Howell. Simon, how's it going? Not too bad. It's been a good week for people getting angry about television on the internet. Yeah, there's been some fun stuff. It's also been a good week for a day that is not today. So I will not wish you a happy anything because that's not today. Mm. That's in the past. But those curious about what I'm referencing can check out my Twitter feed from, from Monday and they'll understand. Is that, is that vague enough? Uh, I would have preferred vaguer, but we'll I'll take, take it. it. Okay. Well, anyways, it's been yes, like you said, it's been an eventful week for TV, uh, for TV discussion. Uh, are we going to talk about the the delightful joy of the New York Times thing? The the, the brilliantine stupidity of Alessandra Stanley. Um, here's the thing about that whole controversy. There's a version of that editorial that's totally fine. And it isn't complicated. It isn't hard to make. You just take out the references to angry black women. Other than that, it was a perfectly fine profile. But why? Why lean on that term? And then why double down when you're asked about it? Why? Well, also, you know, it's factually inaccurate because she says that uh, she uses How to Get Away with Murder as one of her main arguments, which is not a show that Shonda Rhimes... That she created. Created. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> right. Uh, again, you take out that tenet of that, you know, this is the sort of thing that Shonda Rhimes does, and then the creator thing doesn't matter so much, and then the other aspects of the profile are fine. Mm. And just, you don't think so? You're shaking no, your head at me? No, I think the uh, discussion of how... Uh, it's such a bold move to cast Viola Davis because she's not as classically beautiful as Carrie Washington and Halle Berry and specifically mentioning that she's darker skinned than them. I think that's a problem too. Wow. I must've skimmed it. Cause I missed that bit. Never mind. Forget everything I just said. That was, that's really dumb. Well, and the thing that I, I also loved is cause I was, I saw Twitter explode with this. Um, and then I went and, uh, uh, and it, it just like Googled the the critic's name and the word copy editor and like three other articles came up from like 2005 and 2009 about how I guess in 2005 she had her own dedicated um, fact checker because that year she had 25 corrections. Damn. Yeah. It might have been 23. And she still got a job there. And she still has a job there. So, uh, yes, I guess after she got her own fact checker, like she... She got the date of the moon landing wrong. <laughs> Do you remember Sunday night when I wrote a Good Wife review? I have a Good Wife review on soundonsite.org. You should read it. It was fun to write. Uh, when I took 90 minutes to write a Good Wife review, and then you and I took, I don't know, seven minutes to go through it and check for factual inaccuracies or accuracies. Or and, just, you know, you know etc. typos, things like that. Yeah. 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 That's... Seven minutes. Yeah. Yep. Anyways, so I just think this whole thing's been hilarious. Yeah, there's been plenty of other TV discussion going on this week as well, but we got to get into it because we got a full week 
of TV. Before we do, I should mention at the end of the show, it's a, you know, as, as our friends at Battleship Retention say, uh, it's an episode that ends in zero, which means it's time uh, for Informed Opinions, uh, our, our recurring segment where we talk with uh, guests who have some uh, experience in their life, like professional experience and training that gives them a unique insight into an element of uh uh, that is frequently featured on TV. So this week we're talking with Ophelia Tesla from the Kinky Geeks and Eat the Rudecast about forensics and forensic science on television. So that was a lot of fun. That'll be coming at the end of the podcast. Um, I talked with you guys this week. Uh, talked alphas with Alex. Brian, We got I got an answer about the Spartacus thing. He didn't know about Vengeance. So he watched season one. <laughs> and then he watched the prequel season. And then he thought okay next is season three and so what's season three googled that and or and then ended up with a uh, war of the damned so so yeah so he accidentally skipped that season but now he gets to watch it so that's fun right yay it would have been way better if you gotten to watch it in the intended order but still it's nice to discover you've got 10 hours of spartacus to watch and that is an excellent season yeah it's it, you're gonna have fun with that brian we look forward to your thoughts uh talk fall from yours with emma noel uh, mario says i'm glad for your perspective on gotham so i can skip it we'll talk more about gotham later in the podcast that's gonna be fun uh talk yeah, those were my thoughts on gotham express before i'd seen it now i've seen it and yeah anyway we'll get there <laughs> <laughs> Talk to Doctor Who with Steph. The newsroom with Ryan. Yeah, it, it's coming back, guys. Uh, X-Files Cockrophages with Rowan, Emily, and Sonia. That's always fun. And then, of course, The Good Wife with Noel Ryan and several other uh, others of you. Augustine says, Kate beat me to it with her answer on the question of the week. I really want a TV show focusing on Asians in uh, Asians uh, in general. Uh, and <laughs> Yeah, that would be a thing. Because there are very, very few of them. However, there is a mid-season show on ABC called Fresh Off the Boat about a family, uh, um, a first-generation, uh, I want to say Taiwanese-American family, uh, who moves from D.C. to Florida. And uh, it, it's it's set, I want to say, in like the 90s. But it's I've seen the pilot, and it's really fun. It's a, it's a very strong pilot, comedy pilot. So that's one you can look forward to um, at mid-season. Uh, Augustine also says that, because, of course, we had our Masters of Sex discussion. There's going to be more where that came from later uh, in the episode. Augustine says it's me on Masters of Sex. The scene felt awkward, but not funny. Rape is about control, not sex. And that scene portrayed just that. Um, but he does say that if you, if you want a a funny version unintentionally so the michael crichton scripted disclosure now that was comedy i've not seen disclosure have you seen disclosure no i have to say the realm of the early to mid 90s michael crichton uh sex drama slash no i guess that falls under general legal dramas not my cinephilic forte. <laughs> um, Sean, of course, our fabulous uh, co-host Sean, also wrote in. He says, Answer of the Week, I want a full-fledged British romantic poets TV series, Blake, Wordsworth, and Coleridge, then time jump to get Byron Shelley and Keats in there. Uh, he also uh, uh, re referenced Jane Campion's Bright Star, which he's a fan of. Um, he says, Bring Ben Wishaw and Abby Cornish back uh, to reprise their roles. I've, I, still, I still haven't seen Bright Star. I know. Boo. I know. So you, you, but you think that's a good idea? Go with that one. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's no one would watch it except for probably us. But <laughs> I'd be down. Okay. He says about uh, Masters of Sex. He agrees with you for the start of the scene and me for the aftermath. So well done, sir. Toe in the line there, right in the middle. Um, and mm. he also says, and I'm just going to quote this. 
Please, 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 if you two can put aside 15 hours of your time whenever and wherever possible in the next few weeks, no one really cares about the new network stuff. Let's be honest, except Flash. Talk about Flash. Uh, that's how long it takes to completely catch up with The Legend of Korra, which Nickelodeon is trying to get rid of ASAP by pushing the final season premiere to early October, so soon after season three ended. They're also airing it online uh, rather than on Nickelodeon. Yeah. Which is the ultimate fuck you move that I can think of. It really, really is. Um, anyways, uh, he says, I realize 15 hours is quite a lot. It's like a full season of network of a network drama. Uh, but just as you both mentioned, how rewarding being a part of Spartacus, as it was airing, uh, was for you. You will feel the same way about Korra. There are a few shows on t- in television history as special as this one. You don't need to have seen Avatar. All you're missing are very superficial links and, oh, it's that person moments. If you don't like the series, I will eat my shoe. In fact, I'll change this whole plea. Instead of 15 hours, give it four and a half hours, which is enough to see the first season. If you're not compelled after that, Fine, I'll look around for my most appetizing shoe. At least I'll be digesting, knowing that I tried my best to get two very discerning TV viewers to watch the only thing that has a shot at bumping Hannibal to number two at the end of 2014. A bold statement from my co-host of the uh, uh, This Is Our Design podcast. There were several bold statements in there. Anyone making an appeal based on comparison to Spartacus is asking for trouble. But uh, as soon as, you know, I'm in school right now, as soon as I get a, a chorus-shaped hole in my schedule, which will most likely be whenever I most feel like avoiding whatever work it is I have to do, which is usually when I have my most productive time for anything else in general, it'll happen. Well, and then he continues, and so that that's that's the plea that was working for you. The plea that's working for me, um, not this first part, I'll buy you each a t-shirt having to do with your favorite TV show, if we don't like it, and I'll stop hate-watching the following, even though I'm not a Nielsen household, so it doesn't matter. That really, that's the part there. He'll stop giving any more eyeballs to the following. That's what's, you, you're speaking my language, Sean, as you're well aware, I'm sure. Hate-watching the following is like a level of masochism that even I'm uncomfortable with. <laughs> Anyways, hopefully we'll, we will we will report back. I am very interested in in Cora, um, and it really it was the um, the the move to have it air uh, or have oh, on online and like just like they're it really feels like they're just burning off this last season. Um, I don't know if it's the last season. I, I'm guessing based on what they're doing, but um, this is just. Everybody I know who has seen this show says it's amazing and says it's wonderful. So this kind of treatment for what's got it. This is the only Nickelodeon show I'm even aware of. Well, lately I'm less apt to trust critical consensus, but, you know, we'll get there. <laughs> there are shows besides Gotham, sir. <laughs> Uh, but yes, so I I will do my best, Sean. I will bump it up on the list to higher than it cur- than it previously was out of deference, and we will keep you informed. At Sound on Sight, it is Lost Week. It is the yesterday was the tenth anniversary of the pilot of Lost. It was also the twentieth anniversary of Friends, but I don't care about that. I care way more about Lost's tenth anniversary. So we'll have a different article going up each uh, day this week uh, about Lost and sort of thinking back on it. Um, it's also TV, you know, network premiere week, so we'll be talking about. Uh, we'll have reviews up for a bunch of those shows this week at Sound on Sight as well. But we should get into it. We've got a full week of TV to talk about, so let's take a break, and we'll come back with our week in comedy. Woman's 
woman's world Ooh, it's hard on the man Now his part is over Now starts the craft of the father I know you have a little life in your head I know you have a lot of strength left I know you have a little This week in comedy, I'm going to talk briefly about Garfunkel Notes and The League. Then we'll both talk a little New Girl. I'll preview New Girl and Mindy for next week. Just a little tease there. And then we'll we'll really dive in with the Married finale and the You're the Worst finale. First, Garfunkel and Notes. We have their penultimate episode. It ends uh, with the characters looking into the camera and saying cliffhanger. So that was pretty fun. Uh, I, you know, I I continue to enjoy this, ep- uh, this series. I had the Garfunkel and Notes theme song stuck in my head basically all week and i think this has been another of those very successful first season comedies um i look forward to if you're able to catch up with it uh at some point simon talking about it and getting um getting your thoughts because it is a very kind of happy bubbly kind of show and i don't know if that is uh your aesthetic but i think it's very well done so i look forward to your thoughts um actually i just remembered uh i have a new comedy to talk about that i know for sure you didn't watch what? <laughs> what? Okay, well, here, a couple more thoughts here. The last thing I wanted to mention about Garfunkel Notes is that this episode really highlighted for me the use of music on the show in that there's, like, no scoring. Either they're singing a song or th- there's no background music, and it's it's actually it's used really effectively. There's Silence is just used so well um, to, to not goose moments that normally would be. Uh, so I was really enjoying like diving in with that both last week and this week before I move on to the league. What is your contribution? Uh, my contribution is a show that I, I know for a fact you did not watch and probably will never watch. And that's Tim and Eric's bedtime stories. Ah, yes. Uh, ah, yes. Uh, so if you're unfamiliar, um, this is not a new season of Tim and Eric. Awesome show. Great job. Essentially what it is, is uh, Tim Heidecker and Eric Wareheim taking on sort of a Twilight Zone type format, except in 11-minute Adult Swim format, and with a little bit of their particular comic and aesthetic sensibility. Uh, What I was surprised by, uh, I didn't really know anything about it before I sat down to watch it. I really didn't know what form it was going to take. And it really is one story per episode, and it is way more... Uh, it's it's much more contained than what they were doing on Awesome Show, Great Job. It's a little bit more akin to their music video work. I was I, I also thought a little bit about Tim Heidecker and the comedy in terms of uh, it's a it's a little bit of a different comic sensibility. There's still some gross out elements. Uh, there's still sort of this parade of grotesqueries, you know, poking fun at the American dream. That's always going to be there. But there's also just this much more. Uh, I guess more genre-y element that uh, is played a little bit more straight uh, and is very, very dark. And uh, this first episode, not totally successful, but that last shot is supposed to is supposed to have a certain effect on you, and it did. Um, uh, it involves someone being buried alive. If you, I, anyway, I, I'm, I can't. It's a really difficult show to explain. But as someone who's been a fan of theirs for a long time, I'm really interested to see what they do with a with a totally different format. And apparently some of the episodes they're not even in, uh, and it'll just feature other people. I've seen the promo, which has some very intriguing guests, uh, so I'm I'm glad they continue to have a bizarrely great Rolodex. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a 
this this could have been thrown into genre just as easily because it's almost laugh free and on purpose. Uh, I'm I'm always happy to see them doing new things and kudos to Adult Swim for taking a chance on something that's kind of off brand. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to keep talking about it on the show, but I, I fully expect at least one or two of its episodes to be amazing and probably a few to be completely awful. So anyway, always happy to have some t- some Tim and Eric on my TV. Uh, that's by far the most positive review I've heard. So I'm intrigued now. <laughs> so That doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> yeah, I, I still have not uh, dived in uh, with Tim and Eric. Um, I don't know how much of their comic sensibilities... I I don't get the sense that I would enjoy them as much, which is why I haven't set aside the time. It's not like I'm anti Tim and Eric. It's just like, you know, like we were talking about earlier with Legend of Korra. There's I have a list that's so long. I still haven't finished the season of Orange Is the New Black. So uh, there's a lot on that list, but uh, nothing about what I'm hearing is making me want to push Tim and Eric up. But if you recommend it, I can check out a 10 minute episode of, of this. Yeah, if, if I catch a particularly good one, I will. I'll let I'll let you know because this I I didn't feel like this this was the show at the height of what will be its powers if that makes sense which mm-hmm. is a weird thing to know based on the fact that it never existed before and may never exist again but I I I feel like it'll get up to some special things never watch Tim and Eric Awesome Show great job it is not for you Kate. just <laughs> trust me on this one if if the thought of these men getting their eyes gorily pecked out by crows isn't funny to you uh, which I know it isn't. Uh, then, you know, I don't see why you would bother. Well, I mean, it depends on how they're pecked out. That could be funny. I don't see anything inherently not funny about that. It's just a matter of how it's handled. So, you know, I could see that happening, for example, on Key and Peel, which will be starting up... With with jarring edits and reams of blood and gore and flesh everywhere? I, I, I Like I said, it depends on how. But uh, that's interesting, and I will wait to hear your recommendation. As well, All right. Will be my approach. Uh, the League Hide Supremacist uh, was this week, and it's always fun when they, uh, you know, the, the show, this is, is a cast that is full of people who are also doing other things. And so every now and again, they have to have a character be out of town so that they can film that actor's stuff separately to accommodate their schedule. Um, this one was one of the... I'd say it's among the less successful of those, though the the recurring gag of the webcam stuff that it worked surprisingly well. The height supremacist stuff was actually pretty great, and we've been talking about some of that a little bit, unrelated to TV. So that was kind of fun to see that tie in. Do you think you'll make any time for the league this season, this year, or there's is there too much other stuff? It's tricky. It's tricky with comedies. The the ones that I feel like are just going to be consistent and have a chuckle or two every week and nothing, sort of. Uh, above and beyond its usual delivery of service those are hard to make time for and I, I do feel like the league peaked around season two and then it has kind of settled down into a comfortable plateau where it's stayed ever since okay fair enough um well i i continue to enjoy the season i absolutely hear what you're saying about um about those shows and this you know it's one of those ones those people who like the league are gonna like the league if you don't like the league you're not gonna like the league um but let's move on to new girl because i'm curious how you feel about that is this is did this premiere work for you uh or is this just another you know another new girl as usual um i feel as though what might be happening and i could be wrong is that new girls made a couple of attempts to shake up its status quo and try new things and some of those attempts were really successful for a little while 
as most of those attempts were not at all successful and resulted in people stopping to watch or you know giving giving it a long break so i i could be wrong but i i I think that what we're seeing now is new girl 3.0 which will take fewer chances or possibly as few chances as possible in pursuit of the lols and little else i could be wrong but that's what this premiere felt like to me uh which is not a bad move for them for the long term and i i do think that jessica beal is an interesting addition Although, having sex with Malcolm Gladwell as a mark of intelligence, not sold on that. Anyway, um, elsewhere, I, I mean, it was it was a perfectly fine episode. They s- still seem to have trouble giving everyone everything to do, anything to do, rather. But, you know, that's always going to be the case. Yeah, um, this was, uh, you know, I had fun with this one. But, like I said last week, you know, I was glad to spend the time. Um, I like what some of what they're doing. I thought, uh, yeah, just could be like you say, it was fun. Are you, are you with me, Reed Scott? Completely wasted. Completely, especially because that's that is a one episode character for sure, and uh, didn't didn't really use his his. Uh, his expertise at all. Yeah. Jessica Beale could pop up at another wedding or something. I could see that becoming like a once a season recurring foe or something. Uh, I don't know if they will use that character again, but I think that potential is there. Whereas like you say, the Reed Scott character should never come back based on how he's written in this episode. There's nothing interesting about him, uh, that, that character. But um, yeah, I don't really have much more to add. Any other thoughts on this episode? Nope. Let's move on to the other stuff. Well, look, I'll quickly preview this week's episode of uh, New Girl is a lot of fun. Um, basically, just tries Tinder and has to. She she's schooled by by Schmidt. Um, I think you will enjoy this one. I, I think anybody I think anybody who uh, has done any online dating uh, or used any of the dating apps will enjoy that. I have so not the apps, but the online dating. So certainly there was stuff I could identify with in this. Um, and as for Mindy project, uh, the, this week it's, um, Annette Castellano is my arch nemesis, which has, features Rhea Perlman as Danny's mom in some fantastic casting. And she's a lot of fun in this episode. So I would say if that sounds interesting to you, Simon, check it out. Do you think you will? Again, I mean, Mindy has always had amazing casting. Mm-hmm, that's it, true. So far, it, it's never really impacted my enjoyment of the Mindy project. Fair enough. Well, we'll we'll maybe check in with that next week. Let's move on to the FX comedies. Uh, Married and You're the Worst both had their finales. What did you think of Married Family Day? First of all, I just want to say we don't know about renewal on these shows yet, but I feel like as much as I prefer You're the Worst as a show, especially after these finales, I feel like you got to renew them both. I, fe- I still feel like they're a package deal. Uh, they've got so much to, they've got so much to give each other. Uh, as for this finale, uh, I think it really highlighted what's good and what needs work on married. Um, the, it, it had almost, it was almost laugh free for me, which is again, not always a problem, but I think that the dramatic stuff needs to be really potent and, and, and interesting and dynamic and at least in this 22-minute chunk this week, it felt a little bit choppy to me. I mean, we, we spend the first three quarters with uh, with Greer and Faxon not seeing eye-to-eye eye eye at all. And then, to me, the shift in those last few minutes didn't feel earned. Um, or, or at least it, it, it felt like Faxon should have had a little bit more... Uh, a little bit more of a humbling than he got, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean, I don't know that it felt like there was a there were a few scenes missing, which maybe points to that the the more dramatic elements don't always fit 
in this sort of more sitcom mold. But uh, I, I have to say, I, I really love Brett Gelman and his role. He, he almost feels deserving of his own series. And uh, even though it's a character we've seen before, there's something about the way Gelman plays him that's still really compelling. And uh, maybe it's just because I'm thinking of him on the Matthew Perry series as well. But I don't know. I, I feel like like Gelman's such a, an amazing presence that he, he almost sort of takes over some of those scenes for me. Yeah, the um, the supporting characters really have have taken over a lot of what I enjoy most about the show uh, in the last few weeks. Earlier in the season, that was not the case. As much as I enjoyed them, I felt like it was very balanced between um, Nat Paxton and Judy Greer characters and everybody else. This episode, a couple things stood out to me. First of all, it's very odd having the John Hodgman character there at the end, considering he's been in two episodes, I think it is, all season. Uh, John Hodgman is hilarious, and I've really enjoyed his previous uh, episodes over the course of the season. But having him here at the end like he's equal levels of friends with them is ridiculous, because he's not been around. Um, so if they had one more John Hodgman episode, they should have used it in a different way than, I think, just having him in the background here. Uh, the, the Hodgman character is so strange to me, because I still... I just look at him and say, hey, there's John Hodgman with a mustache on my TV. I don't think of him John Hodgman actor at this point. I just don't. And if they want me to think so, they need to spend more time on that character and, you know, spend me spend more time with them. Admittedly, my I haven't seen the whole season, so I've only seen one previous John Hodgman episode. But still, yeah, not very organically included in the ensemble. Um, I absolutely agree about uh, Brett Gellman. He's so much fun. and It's nice to see him get to do something more dramatic because the only show I know him from is Eagleheart. So slightly different here than Eagleheart. Uh, also, I mean, Jenny Slate and Paul Reiser, I think, have been really great this season. And, that, and I've in, very much enjoyed their dynamic. Their dynamic feels more the struggling marriage uh, more more organically, I guess, than, than what I've been seeing with... Uh, um, um, Nat Faxon and Judy Greer's characters in the last few episodes where, again, so this they, they talk about in this episode how since the house stuff, that's when things have gotten strained, but they, I don't, they showed that because all of a sudden they had, at the start of an episode, their house was going to be sold and then thing, and things were strained. But they didn't really show a progression. They didn't, you know, I think they, need, they needed to handle that better because it was just sort of now they're fighting all the time. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it didn't feel particularly organic. And, um, I mean, just, I mean, I get what this episode is going for with Nat Faxon's character. I think they do a good job of, of expressing how he's feeling, but it's goddamn ridiculous. He's got two kids. I mean, and, and I, I totally get flight of fancy. I get all, I, I, I think these are good themes. I think they're well done, but Somebody who's decided he wants to just move his family to Costa Rica and he literally sincerely thinks it's a good idea. I mean, this the happy ending at the end of this for the two of them is the fact that she humors him with pretending that maybe they'll move to Costa Rica. And, and that's that, that's presented as like that's fixed stuff. I mean, how stupid is this guy? Yeah. And again, there's a way there's a way to do that that acknowledges the absurdity and sort of goes hand in hand with the, I forget whether it's the scene before or after where they're talking about their death fantasies. Mm -hmm. And it would and it would have that correct amount of self-awareness and sweetness and darkness. And it would work. And I don't think this episode quite manages it. Again, it feels like there's stuff on the cutting room floor that makes this all work. And it's just, it's not on the screen. 
Yep. So this, especially with this, when you compare it to your worst, which we'll get to next, it really does feel like a disappointment. Um, the this the season as a whole, there's plenty of really great stuff in here, and there's a there are several episodes that I thought were really funny, um, which obviously is not necessarily their goal all the time. But there's certainly episodes that I thought were incredibly successful, very funny, very dramatic, uh, very nuanced. Uh, this was not one of them, and the last few episodes in general just weren't quite as well handled as I, I thought as some of the earlier stuff in the season. Um, any final thoughts on Married, or shall we dive in with You're the Worst? Uh, let's get to You're the Worst, please. Yep. So uh, this was, okay, I thought this finale was, was very, very good. I did not, it did not explode my brain the way it seems to have exploded everyone else's, um, which is to say, I think it's really good. And I think there's a lot to really enjoy about it. I think that there may be better episodes elsewhere in the season, though. That's sort of where I'm at with it. Okay, fair enough. Here's what really impressed me about this finale, and it's partially impacted by uh, listening to Stephen Falk talk on podcasts about um, sort of comedy development and his career, uh, which I knew nothing about. He's a former TV recapper. So he has to be the first person to move from TV recapping to TV show running that I know of, uh, which is relevant to us. Anyway, uh, not that I would ever want to be a TV show owner. It seems like a goddamn nightmare. But um, what really impresses me about You're the Worst in general is the way it honors structure over the course of its whole season, which is something that was really important to Falk and company. Like it needs, the whole thing should feel like one like one story that has some discipline to it which is almost unheard of actually in recent comedies uh, e even the really good ones uh, they don't tend to honor structure and the fact that he had, even down to they had different directors for each section of season which i would never have picked up on had they not had they not mentioned it but it makes perfect sense and this episode delivers the sort of the rom-com ending that the story needs and it does so in a way that honors the tone that honors the characters that does what you need to in the genre and i think works on every level which is and is really funny so all those things are insanely hard to do and it does all of them and it's such a for what they're going for it's a perfect capper for the season i think and as an individual episode no it's maybe not the funniest or the best or the most poignant but i think for their goals it's really hard to think of how they could have improved i you know i absolutely agree with that i love the structure of this i love that we spend a moment with the cat retur being returned to the the shop for example something like that and you know i enjoy, i haven't um sean sent us uh, a link to an interview that Falk did that um, with uh, Grantland, right? That's yeah. Uh, that's you listen to it. That one's really good, as I understand it. Yes, it is. I listened to him on a talk with Mo Ryan on talking TV with Ryan and Ryan, uh, and that was really great to listen to and very informative. But he talked about yes, uh, like how he cares uh, cared about things like the cat and the you know all this this really feeling like a world. It tells us so much about the the characters, but also the showrunner and the show's priorities that they cared enough to bring back that actress to have. 10 seconds with her finding a cat. They paid that actress for that episode so that we could see the cat be returned, which tells us a lot about, um, you know, other shows would just have the cat disappear and never be mentioned again. 
And so I really like that this shows the character's responsibility. I mean, she may be a screwed up, uh, you know, per, a person who's trying to not be an adult for a good chunk of the season, but she buys her food processor and she makes sure she doesn't kill the cat. I mean, that tells us about the character. It's really, it's, it's a lovely attention to detail. And like you said, the structure of this is very successful. Uh, I, I appreciate this form of uh, drunken wedding outburst thing instead. So it's at a baby shower or an announcement kind of party rather than actually at a wedding, which is a nice little twist on what usually happens. Um, some of the some of the the things weren't as successful for me, uh, meaning like the the Notting Hill slash four weddings and a funeral rom com speech, basically was a little too Hugh Grant for me. You know, like it, it's like I get what you're doing, it's a little too much, and so I really love that. Then of course she says no, but it just if that that felt like the show trying to be something else instead of like the character trying to do that or you know, so there's a couple little tweaks here or there that for me keep this from being as transcendent as much of the rest of this season has been when you compare it to other rom-com shows um but yeah i cannot argue with the structure or and the development of the characters i really like what we get with paul i really like what we get with becca and i mean i this is a very very good season season one finale I would add, I mean, my only real problem with this episode and actually kind of the season in general is that I feel as though Becca's such an important character for the story. Like she didn't get to be as fully rounded a character as many of the others did. She kind of, she has the closest thing to a thankless role, I think, on the whole season, which is, you know, the basically the bitchy ex, which is a, you know, a standard trope of rom-coms and stories and story in general sitcoms. And she kind of threatens to be more interesting sometimes. They never really let her do that. So I'm I'm hoping that next season, she if they get one, which they goddamn well should, um, that she gets a chance to to spread her wings a little bit. Do you want to uh, add anything about uh, Edgar, for example? Because we talked a little bit about that off mic. You're more on board. Yes, uh, I, I went. I didn't watch. I didn't watch the entire season, but I I went back and watched. I think from episode three or four, and now I I, I have a much better grasp on the Edgar thing. Um, I think that you were totally right. He does. He and his plots really help to to ground uh, the series. And I didn't understand that the, that the thing with the guy from NCIS LA was a motif. I get that now, and that was great. <laughs> Is he actually on NCIS LA? Um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. I tried to figure that out and I couldn't, but I, I, I hope that he is. Uh, I, I love the idea of getting like tiny bit character actors to play themselves, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, probably isn't true. And um, yeah, so you were totally right about Edgar. And I just have to say, one of the um, we didn't really mention this last week, but I, I think what really made the show incredibly special to me was the fact that I don't know any of these actors i've never seen any of them before and they all kick so much ass <laughs> yeah they're pretty great um i was familiar with janet barney before this but that's about it so it, it was certainly nice discovering them this week and i guess the last thing i'll mention i mean you heard the music coming into this this section so much fun to have uh uh Cather donahue i want to say um do the the karaoke and she sounded damn good she was real good and as Fox told a story in the Andy Greenwald interview about uh, getting the rights to uh, this woman's work by Kate Bush, 
which they described as being really difficult to get. But what I find interesting is that this is actually the second comedy finale that I've seen deploy that song. What's the other one, Kate? Do you know? I don't remember. It's the, uh, did you ever see the Extras Christmas special? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or I'd say I can't, I can't remember if it was in the Christmas, Christmas special or in the finale to the original series, but it, it definitely was deployed at a very significant dramatic moment in that show, and it, it, it worked gangbusters there, too. Nice. Well, clearly it's a good song. It's a very effective song. So I'm going to ask the question that I think we both know the answer to, but what wins your week in comedy? Oh, definitely you're the worst. Yeah, this is definitely you're the worst. It's 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 a contender for top ten, I think, for the year. What about for you? Yeah, it definitely came from behind in that regard. I had no expectations for it based on the fact that FX's comedy development, actually FX's development in general, has been a little bit wonky this year. Not as uh, not as successful as they have been in the past all the time. The fact that they got a home run with this one is. Uh, refreshing and a little bit reassuring. Well, now we're going to take a break and come back with our week in genre. Next up is our week in genre, and I'm going to kick things off talking a little bit about the Sleepy Hollow premiere. This is War and Doctor Who Time Heist before we both uh, chime in on Outlander, The Wedding, and The, the Gotham Pilot. But first, uh, Sleepy Hollow premiere. I've seen actually the first two episodes of Sleepy Hollow. I thought the show came back very strong. I think it came back. Um, the way in which it comes back, the way in which it handles its cliffhangers is so intelligent and it really fits with the show um i'm being vague here because of course simon you haven't had the chance to see this one yet um because you watched the gotham pilot instead on with your limited time and as uh, part of the podcast here and on behalf of our listeners i would like to thank you because we're going to have a really entertaining gotham discussion in a little bit here but for this premiere i think it, it shows a really interesting an intelligent use of its character's resolution of the cliffhanger. And I just, I look forward to a season of Timothy Busfield as Benjamin Franklin, you know, doing scientific experiments in the nude outside. I mean, I just, in that wig with those glasses, it's going to be so much fun. So, uh, yeah, I'm very much looking forward to, to Sleepy Hollow. It came back very well. And, um, the next episode, we'll touch on, in on a few new char few characters we didn't see in the premiere. Um, and I understand that there are uh, some new characters that will be, you know, mixing things up a bit as well. So we'll see when they get added in. But for right now, a strong start to Sleepy Hollow Season 2. I'll mention that um, Les Chapel of the EV Club is now reviewing it for us over at Sound On Sight. <laughs> Yep. So we have some. There's we have so many fabulous writers at Sound Outside TV that I'm very glad to have associated with with the website. Um, Les is joining Sound Outside TV, the the contributor pool with Sleepy Hollow. So people should go check out his reviews at Sound Outside. Uh, 
what are your hopes for Sleepy Hollow? What I mean, are you excited about it? Where are you at with this show right now? I'm not as excited about Sleepy Hollow as a lot of other people because uh, I guess I just don't value fun uh, as much as other people do. Um, at least not empty fun, which at least to me, Sleepy Hollow is empty calories, which is fine. There's definitely a place for that. Uh, but I would really like to have seen it do more than that. And I feel like it's going to groove of being super crazy and super fun and kind of funny and a little bit irreverent and then not really do more than that. If they could, if they could find a way to get to a higher level than that, that would be great. But I'm not sure that's really within the show's ambitions. And I will say they, they, I think they're in danger of um, becoming a character of themselves with some of their favorite go-tos. For example, Ichabod Crane, lectures someone about the evils of an element of modern society uh that is fun in the first season but it, 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 pretty quickly they're gonna run out of ways to make that feel fresh and then it's just gonna just be them go, going for oh look at that ichabod crane isn't he curmudgeonly isn't he just adorable in the way that he doesn't like modern society um you know so like there's I think they have to be careful with how they deploy that. Um, it can be very effective, but it could easily become a groan-worthy moment in each episode. So we'll see what they do with that as the season continues. Uh, Doctor Who, time highest my review is up at Sound on Sight. It will tell you something that my review is under a thousand words. That almost never Damn. happens for Doctor Who. Yes. This, this episode, it's just they, you know, they do a heist uh, at a bank, and it's just screamingly obvious who the architect is from the, the beginning of the episode, which is not that big of an, a concern, except that there's no substance to this. And, you know, they really, there can be a bit of fun or, or fluff. I mean, that's one of the wonderful things about Doctor Who is that it can change genre every week and, and really reinvent itself. But the trouble is, there's nothing here you haven't seen before. It's it's just a pastiche of, of tropes. So, like, there's, there's the character who's rogue from X-Men. There's the guy who's, like, the, the cyber hacker dude who's modified his body but has lost his memories in the process. I mean... That's not interesting. They could have just taken Victor from Dollhouse, the end of Dollhouse, and put him in here, and that would have been a much more interesting character. There's no specifics to any of these characters, and that really, those details are what takes a character from being a trope to something more interesting, and this never goes for that. Uh, they're, they're, the creature, the teller that they introduce, is a nice visual. It's a different kind of, of alien for the show, so that's nice, but, um, the, but the, I mean, the ability, really, they have don't think now so don't don't blink uh don't look away for the silence don't breathe at the start of the season and now don't think i'm sorry at a certain point i just can't care this should be really because how do you not think how do you shut down so you aren't thinking about stuff it's a really that's an excellent idea but you've done something just like this already this season. You need to be more creative than this, Stephen Moffat. And I say Stephen Moffat because he has a co-writing credit on this. Um, the style is nice. The d direction by Douglas McKinnon. There's some really nice visual touches. I like that the season is doing a lot more of that. That's great. Keep that up. But there needs to be more to go with it. And if it's just going to be fluff, it needs to be more original fluff than what we get here. So that's my. those are my thoughts on Doctor Who. To get more in-depth, go and check out my review of Sound on Sight. Let's move on uh, to Outlander, though. The the much awaited for those who are familiar with the books wedding. Um, I'm curious how successful this episode was for you, because you've only seen last week's episode and this week's episode. Um, as someone who's seen the entire season, it's a, I think it puts it in a different context because you have 
uh, a character introduced, uh, Claire introduced in a, a very particular way um, with with her husband and um, over the course of the, of the pilot. And then the show pretty actively avoiding UST and longing looks and everything with Jamie until we get to this point here. So that, you know, when we get the, the two coming together, I, because of the way the show has handled the two of them throughout the rest of the season... It was very successful for me. I'm curious how it worked for you. Um, I, I'm having trouble with Outlander because, as you mentioned, I started on it last week, and I should have at least watched the pilot before I did that because it would. I knew that it featured stuff with Claire and her real husband as opposed to her doppelganger, creepy, rapist, crazy, whipper husband. Um and that would have been nice to see. I haven't seen that, so uh, everything I say about Outlander has a huge asterisk next to it. But it does feel weirdly aimless. Like I'm not really sure what the I'm not really sure what the story is here. Like I I understand the setting, I understand basically the characters, I understand why the show is that that part I totally get um and that's to me by far the most valuable and interesting thing about it. Uh, this is not a story that's being told in, or I mean, A, it's not a story that's being told, that's been told before, at least not on TV and not in this way. And it's certainly not the sort of perspective we're used to in a series that's anything remotely like this. Uh, and that's great. But it does feel a little bit um, like it, I, I don't know, maybe it's it, it, it's it's partially due, I think, to the fact that I know it's it's a it's a Ron Moore show. And all I know about him is Battlestar, and and this is a really weird show to compare to Battlestar Galactica. But that was a show that never lacked for momentum, and uh, this feels and not, and I don't I don't I don't think it's owing to the incredibly slow uh, motion of the episodes, these very long scenes, and uh, you know scenes taking taking place in one in one room for a very long time here for a different reason than last week, obviously. Um, I don't think it's so much about that as the fact that it just seems to be, I feel like it needs a little bit more in terms of, it doesn't feel, let me put it this way. Does she want to go home or not? <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Yes, she does. Yes, she does. Um, cause what, what the show has done well, I would say to this point is, and, and, and you can see a little bit in this episode, they, I think it's very important that they keep having, uh, flashbacks to uh, her life with her husband. Um, it's, I wasn't sure how they were going to handle that, but the fact that they are kept usually pretty brief, but he's very much a presence on the show and uh, a presence in her thoughts and in her memories. Um, I, that That's really been successful for this element. The fact that they spend literally half of the pilot before any time travel happens at all. Um, they really establish that relationship in the pilot. That really helps. But, you know, she's, we see her in the earlier episodes. And again, because you've, the, the two you've seen are the two where she's out on the road. Um, the rest of that episode, she spends kind of, of those episodes, she spends kind of just going nuts because she's got to get home. Only she's not in a position where she can do that. And the actress, I think, has done a good job with that element. But, Again, and this is, I can't promise that if you watched the other episode, it would be more successful for you. But I think that is part of it because, you know, we see her desperation to go home, but she's unlike something like Battlestar, which is so driven by plot and, you know, the Adama 
realizing how important it is for the people on Galactica and in the fleet to have a goal that they're working towards, how crucial that is to their morale and their ability to not just dissolve into uh, uh, into um, entropy and despair. You know, that's a very strong part of that show. Here, it's this very strong part of the show is the fact that she is stuck. There's no, there's nothing she can do. She's she there's there's an armed guard with her at all times because they think she's a spy. So she doesn't have an opportunity to escape. And the one time that she's out in the woods by herself, she almost gets raped or killed. So you know they they do a good job of establishing the threat. But you're right, there is an inherent um, you don't have the same kind of drive. Whereas Battlestar is very much about character, but also very much about momentum and plot. This one is almost purely about character and what do you do if you desperately want something, but you're stuck. Right. And I think for me, I I wouldn't necessarily be longing for, I mean, for instance, we've talked about Rectify, where uh, there isn't always that forward momentum, but it's totally cool. I actually didn't get to talk about Rectify this season, but we'll get there at some point, end of the year. Um, Anyway, uh, the reason I'm okay with no real forward momentum all the time on Rectify is because you're dealing with uh, a really incredibly developed universe, uh, really incredibly developed and believable characters, and uh, a bunch of other stuff I'm not going to get into right now. Uh, I think my problem with Outlander is while uh, many aspects of, of it are really beautifully realized, and again, the change of perspective is uh, is wonderful, there are characters who I just don't buy like Jamie like just the way that that's his name right yeah buff husband guy (laughs) um (laughs) like he he just seems he despite the actor's best efforts he is constructed exactly like a stereotypical character from a romance novel which is fine uh but to lean on that so heavily and have that be something we're supposed to be so emotionally invested in I'm not really sure that works for me I, the show has been very much a single character perspective. And so we get some stuff with Jamie. We get some sense of his background, his history. But you're right. He's very much romance novel guy. Um, and we haven't spent... Because we were so in Claire's uh, head and in her mind. I mean, even just with the narration. You're seeing all of the characters through her eyes. You don't... Really, I try to think if you see the, any of the other characters when she's not in the room. I mean, not very frequently. So so that leads to us having a very strong picture of Claire, but much less these other characters. And so um, I can't believe I didn't realize that about us basically only seeing characters when she's in the room. Except not this week. With? With oh, Jamie. Yes, with, we with see Jamie. his perspective yes. on, on everything yes. that happened because she was drunk the whole time. <laughs> that's true this the, the structure of this was very different it was actually a little jarring to me to get the flashbacks to the way that they structured it um which made this one less uh not one of my my probably my favorites of the season um so that was a change yeah uh but uh yes i would absolutely agree with that criticism the rest of these characters are not as well fleshed out oh the gentleman you were calling bearded Scott guy, uh, I think is a little more than some of the others because we have gotten a little sense of, um, uh, of, of maybe some internal conflict with him. He's definitely a threat to, to Claire still, but also a defender of her in an interesting way. Um, and seeing, I think that actor has also done a good job with the performance, but, um, yeah, I can't really I can't really fault your criticisms. I will say though, I mean, we've talked briefly about the change of perspective, but I just we need to underline th- that because it's so 
it's so refreshing to see Jamie given the 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 ca- the camera positioning of the woman. Mm-hmm. When when uh when Claire is pleasuring him, shall we say, that we hold on his face and just his face like he gets the framing of the oh heaven forbid we can't see boobs on TV mm-hmm. character. Yeah. And so just some of those directorial choices, it's you never see that on TV. It's so so nice to see. As much as Chris Gear's threesome face from You're the Worst kind of spoiled some of those scenes for me, um, th- uh, you're, you're you're totally right. Uh, the thing about Outlander, and if I could sum it up, really, is that to me, it's more. It is it is a very refreshing series. To me, it's more interesting to think about than always to watch right now. It is it is maybe more refreshing than 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 excellent for me. Uh, I'm I'm definitely going to keep watching it and keep sort of charting progress, and probably I will go back and watch a couple of earlier episodes. But it's it's sort of more of a curiosity for me than like a great show. Yeah, I, and um, I I don't think I would say quite that level for me. I'm definitely more invested. I'm certainly more invested than I thought I would be after the first couple episodes. So it's really grown on me. Um, but this week is the mid season finale, as I understand it. They're just doing eight this year, and then they're going to do the next second half of the season next year so uh there's just one more before it goes on hiatus and um and so i will be curious to see what they do for their mid-season finale and um you know i I like that she's this is a character who just is trying to get home but she keeps being pulled i mean i think they're doing a good job of having her get pulled into other situations that complicate things so that she can't just leave and go home in the same way i think they've done a, a pretty organic job of 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 that element to the character and especially to her relationship with Jamie and um yeah basically kind of like finding a way to only somewhat manipulatively force her into this marriage um bef- while they haven't been doing like longing looks for episodes you know it's like having that element be um something having that approach be a way they don't go is something that i really have appreciated yeah, it's not hard to imagine the bad version of Outlander. Oh, it's really not. Well, let's move on to our final, though, uh, episode of our week in, in genre, and that's the Gotham pilot, which uh, I thought was strong. Uh, I think I think it's a good pilot, and I think they do a pretty good job of setting up the world. By far the most interesting of the characters are, uh, I mean, I really like Ben McKenzie and Donald Logue. I think their partnership works well. Um, but Fish Mooney is st- certainly the most successful character that is not the others. And you're grimacing, so dive in. <sighs> okay. Earlier, here's what happened. I woke up at 4.30 in the morning. I couldn't sleep. I figured I'd watch Gotham. And halfway through the pilot, I was so angry that I just, I went on Twitter and I just said trash and then added the the, the appropriate hashtag. Uh, I do think the show improves a little bit in the second half, if only because it really... Bruno Heller's a pro, and he knows how to escalate well. So he escalates quickly in the pilot because he knows otherwise he's going to lose interest, and he throws... He shoves a whole crap load of plot in there. Whole crap load of setup. Well done for him in that sense. But man, this show is not for me. <laughs> Can we just answer one question? Um, because I I can't stop thinking about it. Was... That was the death of Bruce Wayne's parents, which, by the way, is something I never needed to see dramatized ever again. Um, was it supposed to look like a mugging? You know what? I saw this at Comic-Con. I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember the specifics. Okay. Well, uh, I'll, 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 I'll do this again for you. 
so um, the Waynes are shot by a guy wearing shiny shoes who shoots $6 bullets. Uh, yet the shadowy cabal or whoever who actually killed Wayne's parents, uh, uh, we, don't, we don't really know what happened, but they try to pin it on this other guy. Uh, it barely holds up, so it's a really poor conspiracy. Um, but I, I, some super intelligent group of villains decided to kill Wayne's parents, and they decided the most inconspicuous way to do it was to shoot him with a $6 bullet. Like, uh, anyway. Quick question there. Um, because I, I legitimately don't remember because I saw this at Comic-Con, uh, so I don't remember the specifics. Now, do we know that this shadowy cabal had them killed, or is the shadowy cabal trying to calm the uh, the effects of them having been killed? Um, well, the... Sh- <laughs> We don't. We don't actually know. But does it matter? Because it seems like either way, it matters. Because if they're gonna have them killed, you're right. They they're much better and less obtrusive ways to do that. Um, Unless they want a giant outcry that they immediately then call by framing somebody, which that makes way less sense to me. So that's why. I, I just I just can't think of a circumstance in which using fancy bullets to kill them is a good idea. Yeah, I agree. I I agree with that. Okay, let's get that out of the way because that's not my real problem with the show. My real problem is, okay, there's a lot of bad piloty exposition, which I'll just ignore, fine, pilots, whatever. Um, I think the show is kind of ugly. Like, okay. I'm sorry, I know a lot of people have really praised the look of the show, but there's a lot of garish CGI. There's like seven more show needs to pull its look off. Um, I hate, hate the dialogue they saddled, they saddled Donald Logue with. He's an amazing actor. They throw this like hepcat slang through his character to try to make him seem like he's down with the other dirty cops uh it's just they work way too hard on that character to make him seem you know slovenly and all the other adjectives they throw at him they needed to cut half of that dialogue i i I wish i'd been writing down what he was saying because there's just oh it was so labored and forced and annoying uh i think ben mckenzie's also an amazing actor uh, Gordon is a boring, boring, boring character. He's so obviously proto Batman that it kind of renders the whole thing pointless. Uh, he even kind of has like a gruff Batman voice that he uses when he's being very serious. Um, I don't know if anyone else picked up on that. Oh God, the many, many scenes, as you've already mentioned, the many scenes of this person will be a villain later are fucking annoying. Uh, especially the scenes of Catwoman just sort of crawling on stuff. Because, like, my favorite example is at the funeral, when she can't just show up to the funeral, she has to be on a crypt, like, 20 feet away. Like, really, that's way more obvious than if you just showed up to the funeral. Like, if you're, everyone's gonna wonder who that freak is on the fucking crypt, than if you just walked into the funeral, you're already wearing black! Anyway, uh, so many things about this annoyed me. I can appreciate the craft that went into some of it, but... To me, this is not an interesting... It comes to, like, graft quasi-realism or, like, you know, in terms of police corruption, etc. onto this comic booky, uh, Sorry, broadly comic booky universe is awkward and ill-fitting. And, frankly, this is a really... To me, anyway, this is a really badly timed series in terms of its flippant depiction of, of graphic police violence... Uh, not my idea of of an escapist good time. Anyway, 
Those are some <laughs> of my two cents on Gotham. Yeah, some of it I agree with, some of it uh, I I didn't have a problem with the way you did. Uh, most of the Donald Logue stuff I was okay with because I think he makes it work. Um, and uh, I look forward to seeing how that character is shaped as the writers get more and more familiar with uh, him as an actor. I think I would be very surprised if some of that stuff isn't toned down in the few weeks. Because it, it would be very easy, and other critics have commented on this, it would be very easy for that character to just be cackly over the top bad guy. And I think Logue plays it very well, uh, kind of finding a middle ground for him. Um, and you know, like, if you want to look for plot holes, they're there. I mean, at the end, what happens with Gordon? I mean, a bullet shot next to somebody sounds very different than a bullet shot into somebody. So, you know, there's like... Oh, oh that whole sequence is ridiculous. Yeah, so you're just going out, you're just going to go with some of this stuff, or you're not. And that's totally fine. Then Gotham's not for you. Like Mario said, Gotham's, he doesn't think Gotham is for him. That's totally cool. Um, I Like I said last week, I... I really don't need all of the, oh, are they, they're going to become a villain. You know, like <laughs> the Ivy thing. It's like, her name is not Ivy. Her name is what Eileen, right? Isley is that character's actual name um, in the comics, uh, at least. Yeah. Here she's Ivy and she's stroking Ivy in like several scenes. Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, that's the part of the show that's not for me. The cop part of it is more interesting. Also, the, everything with Gordon's uh, wife or fiance or whatever, that really, I, I did, should just cut all of that as far as I'm concerned. But again, for me, this comes down to if they're doing quasi-procedural, quasi-serialized cop show with Ben McKenzie and Donna Logue, I'm going to have fun with that almost assuredly. Um, so that part of the show really does work for me. And again, you haven't commented on it. I think Fish Mooney is a lot of fun. I think uh, Pinkett Smith is, is a blast in this. She's okay. I mean, she's playing it very, very broad. Well, she which... knows what show she's in, in a way that some of these other characters no, no, don't. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, although I'm not sure the show knows what show it is quite yet, at least um, not as confidently as other people think. And so much of the show is so uninteresting that when we get to that scene with Barbara Gordon and uh, and the detective and there's that bit of like gay subtext it's like wait what show am i watching yeah it was almost it it was almost like law and order like levels of left fieldness well we'll see how i mean i i, I see wheel i'll see cuz i'll keep watching uh how it progresses i don't anticipate you're going to keep checking in um not unless it be it gets like 85% less insulting and i should say uh people will accuse me of confirmation bias because i expressed disinterest in this before i watched it and you're not wrong uh but neither am i so up. <laughs> well on that note what wins your week in the genre i will i should note i only watched doctor who when i get the impression from you that it was a particularly good episode i definitely didn't get that impression from even seeing the headline of your review so i didn't watch it this week so i'll happily give it to outlander and i'm going to give it to sleepy hollow for their premiere which was quite a quite a lot of fun um yeah and so that will wrap up our week in genre and we'll be right back with our week in drama
This week in drama, I'll quickly take a look at the Honorable Woman finale, the pairing knife, um, and then talk a little bit about the Scorpion pilot. Then we'll both talk about Madam Secretary's pilot, as well as the Nick, Boardwalk Empire, Masters of Sex, and the Good Wife premiere. Woo. There's a lot of dramas. We're already running super long. Um, so, the Honorable Woman. This will hopefully be a DVD shelf at some point. Uh, so that we can really dive in. Uh, Simon hasn't had a chance to, to, to catch up with the show yet. All I'll say here to keep it spoil free, spoiler free for, for Simon is I think they did a really good job with this finale. It's a satisfying conclusion. Um, they, they do a good job of not making too pat or too, um, nebulous of a conclusion of a you know resolution to everything. I think it really does work. And, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal as, you know, as it will surprise almost no one or should surprise no one it is fantastic here. The, um, the progression of the character is very believable and well handled. And, um, the supporting performances, um, particularly that one that anybody who's watching, who's watched this will know who I'm talking about that particularly that one is very, very good. And the final moments of that character in this uh, series are very um, powerful. Um, Also, Stephen Ray is just a blast. So much fun. I mean, I'm sure I've seen him in many things, but this really has been what has introduced him to me as a character actor. And he is just, he's just fantastic as the, the, the old dog. Like how many times have we seen a show that has like the, the old dog character. He's been around the blocks one too many times, but he still has one more fighting him. They're trying to fire him, but he really, he knows his stuff kind of a thing. We've seen that character many, many times, and uh, it's just so wonderfully, the character's so wonderfully written and portrayed here. It's just been an absolute treat to discover that actor and uh, really sit with the show. Eight episodes seems like about the right length for a show about um, uh, tension um, in Gaza and in uh, Israel um, so I just like that, that I really appreciate their, um, expediency, I guess I'll say. And the fact that this isn't, they're not trying to make this a continuing series, that it would be a massive mistake. So, um, I'm glad, I'm very glad to have spent the time with the honorable, uh, woman. I hope it, I think it may be in contention for my, uh, top 10 of the year. It's always funny to see which shows have completely fallen off. There's no way true detective is going to be in my top 10 of the year. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> uh, the honorable woman might be, we'll see. I think You're the Worst is more likely to make it than The Honorable Woman. If you want another example of Stephen Ray kicking ass, albeit somewhat unconventionally, I would uh, definitely check out Stuart Gordon's Stuck, which if you don't know the premise of, don't look it up because it should be a surprise. Is this a TV show or a film or what? Oh, it, it's a film. Okay, good. See, I've never heard of it. That's very interesting. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that, that's where I'll leave The Honorable Woman for now. And again, like I said, hopefully this will be a DVD shelf um, in the not-too-distant future. But for now, let's move on to Scorpion, which had its pilot on Monday night on CBS. The show is just not good. I was just... People, you know, the, the general critical consensus has been on this show, yeah, it's not good, but it sure is pretty with the car chases and such. And yes, sure, I guess, but... It's such groan-worthy, not just writing, but performances from pretty much everybody in this that I just couldn't, I mean, I was, uh, I just couldn't really even believe that I was, what I was watching. I was like, are they really going for, they're really going for this. So, um, yeah, I thought this was very not good. And, um, can we just never again with the photo, I have a photographic memory there's no such thing as a photographic memory. And anybody who's as smart as this show repeatedly likes to tell us 
that these characters are because they have a high IQ, which apparently also means they just know everything. So being able to learn stuff quickly and learn learn it well means you just know everything there is to know, apparently. Um, anyways, anybody who prizes their intelligence that much would not say photographic memory. They'd say eidetic memory, which is a different thing, but the closest that we come to having... Anyways, that those are the kind of really annoying things that this show has a lot of. And um, Cat McPhee was surprisingly not... by. F- by far not the worst thing about this um, pilot. Uh, the the genius autistic kid also, surprisingly, by far not the worst thing about this pilot. Um, but I will not be checking in anymore with Scorpion. There is better brainless TV to watch. There's a lot better brainless TV to watch. Um, so that's those are my thoughts. It does look very pretty, though. The other the critics are not <laughs> wrong. Shock and astonishment. Justin Lin knows how to to film action scenes really well and make them look really super pretty but this can't possibly happen on a week-to-week basis because they don't have there's no budget big enough in the world to make that happen um so just i will not be watching again uh any thoughts on scorpion are you are any chance you're going to watch this or is this just another like point and laugh at kate for watching it you know there was a time a couple of years ago i think i only did this once where i along with you watched every single network pilot Never again. And it's because of shows like Scorpion. I will never take that bullet for you again. I do not ask you to do that, sir. I'm fully aware that I'm a crazy person for so doing. But uh, you did watch, though, the Madam Secretary pilot because it airs before The Good Wife? Well, yeah, because I, I'm i covering The Good Wife now, which means that um, I try to not PBR it. I try to watch it live so I can get my review up as quickly as possible. And as anyone who watches The Good Wife knows, you never really know when it's going to air because of football. So I sat down at nine o'clock Eastern uh, in time to watch Madam Secretary, <laughs> which, which is really the bargain bin cut rate, not as good on any level rip off of The Good Wife. Let's be clear. Even down to the um, scoring, you know, they're trying to do the classical, you know, scoring and it's just nowhere near as good. Yeah. Full disclosure, halfway through this episode, I got completely bored and went to do some dishes instead. Uh, so maybe in the second half it got amazing, but all I saw was, I mean, I don't, I, I've never thought about Taylor Leone in my life. Never a bad thought, never a good thought. I've never had a thought about Taylor Leone yet. She's so obviously the best thing about this and she's not even impressive. She's just fine. I think she's very good. Actually. I really liked her in this and I liked her in this enough, uh, that, and I also really actually liked Tim Daly too. I thought they have a really good rapport and, uh, I think there's, they could do some fun stuff with them. Um, I'm going to keep watching, even though I hear the next two episodes are so much worse than this. So I might just skip to episode four, Really, but because I really was impressed with her performance and you know, I, I have liked her quite a bit in the past and, uh, I've been sort of waiting for her to get the right kind of role, and I think she's—I think she's very good here. I, I think the key flaw for me, there's so many. Uh, the Schmaltzy score is just one major one. It's so bad. Um, first of all, you've cast a lot of very interesting actors like Zeliko Ivanek and Keith Carradine in insanely boring roles. Just what is the point of that? Anyway, um, the main one for me is the fact that this is an episode that deals with a hostage crisis and the Middle East, and it's very cutting edge, and yet there's no... It, it was one of the least tense TV watching experiences I can recall. Yeah, I don't disagree, and uh, for me, the stuff that works about this pilot is not that stuff, 
And it's certainly not any of the just ridiculous posturing between um, uh, the Taylor Leone character and Shelko Ivanik. Uh, it's it seems like uh, Taylor Leone's character and her husband talking at home, and 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 you know ha- understanding the the importance or the the usefulness of um, different elements of her position and. Uh, and and you know the 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 at the very like that opening scene where her and her um former CIA buddies are all getting a drink that's the kind of stuff that really works for me yeah some of the tim daly scenes were okay but some of them just the dialogue didn't work for me at all i, I the chemistry works the dialogue and the writing didn't and the conspiracy junk oh my god what a bad idea i was very bummed that they uh killed off Wim sadler uh, in the first episode, because um, he's just so wonderful. I need to have him. Uh, I'd be very happy to have him pop back up uh, as a weekly presence on my TV. Um, so I, that was, I mean, it was expected, but disappointed, disappointing. And I do think that the second half, with, I think there is more in the second half that you would have liked if right. you had watched if it. If I so, hadn't watched it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but but if the first half, if you can't, if you can't, the first half can't interest you enough to get you to stick through the second half, then that's clearly a significant flaw. Um, and consistently what I've heard from critics who have seen the first three, I think, is usually, is what the has been sent out to those critics who have access to Madam Secretary screeners, um, is that the second and third episodes are even stupider and with their, like, the, the crises of the week. Um, so this one might be a bit of a slog. This might be a tune in around episode six, seven, see if it's gotten better. But again, like I will say I did, I was very impressed with Taylor Leone and, and just the character, even outside of her role as the, um, as the secretary of state, that character is somebody I would like to spend more time with um, on my TV. Fair enough. Um, let's go to the Nick. Start calling me dad. Should we start with that creepy, creepy last scene? Yes. Which, uh, really, really nice direction from Stephen. I don't know about nice. Really effective direction there from Soderbergh. Effective. Yeah. <laughs> really, if, and uh, direction and camera work, because again, he is his own camera operator. He's very clear on that. Um, not the scene I would have expected to end that episode, but I think it was one of the show's better attempts at sort of, you know, you're dealing with characters who are on the cusp of discovery and, um, and I think the show's generally done a good job, and especially here, of balancing sort of that desire for progress with the fact that they're still in a, an extremely retrograde time period. And uh, there's a real queasiness to that. And I think that scene captured that really nicely. Yeah. And, you know, I think this scene also did a good job of establishing something that has not, had not, at least to me, been well established previously which was the the delicate position of her family and her family's wealth we get a strong impression in that scene that basically the, the this this coupling or this um fiance you know her fiance is uh his family has really uh, been responsible for a lot of their recent financial success um and therefore her ability to to do what she's doing at the nick and this other stuff so um you know that gives her a reason now not a good reason maybe but a reason to not just call off the wedding in a way that it seems like for episodes it's you've just been waiting for her to be like i want to be an independent woman you want me to get married have a bunch of kids and leave and never come back this is not going to work out let's break up 
this is finally a reason that maybe she wouldn't do that. And um, that's been, I think that's been a necessary point in that subplot. So it's nice to have it established. Yeah, that's definitely a good point. Um, the The race relations aspect gets a little bit smoothed over this week, which frankly I wasn't wild about. But uh, I did I did like though that we got Algernon a little bit roughed around the edges, literally and figuratively, which was I think really overdue. Yeah, I mean, I liked that. You know, this is episode what five? No, even more. This is episode six. You know, I, I five episodes of the uh, the Thackeray just being a dick to be a dick and ignoring the obvious talents of the person right in front of him. Uh, that was enough. So I'm glad that they're they're finally they've gotten over that. I'm sure there will still be lots of racial tension. So much racial tension. I I do not expect that to go away as an element on the show. I have more faith in the show than that. Um, however, just having because that has never really seemed like a the defining element of Thackeray. He seems like a person who values creativity and intelligence and um, innovation much more than he cares about race. And so then to have all, you know, to have him ignoring the talents of this person in front of him um, this whole time has at a certain point, as soon as he spent any energy interacting with Eldrinon, it seems like he would see his value um, because that's the character they've established. So I'm glad that they're, that's out of the way. And I'm sure there'll be plenty of other tensions from other characters um, and still probably from Thackeray as well. I just, am, you know, I like that the, the clinic came out into the open. I like that Algernon gets to have a bit of a power play there. I think that works. And um, yeah, I just, you know, and, and I also like the stuff that we get with uh, Birdie as well, really establishing him and kind of rewarding viewers who have, uh, you know, for the amount of time we've spent with him. Bernie is actually kind of a breakout character, I think. He's just been uh, really great to watch. I really hope they're not doing what I think they're doing with him and Thack and uh, the nurse, whose name escapes me, uh, and probably will still for a while. Love Triangle? Yeah. Well, it's not just Love Triangle, but specifically the nice guy who doesn't get to have the girl because he's not interesting enough. Um, or mm -hmm. not dark enough, or whatever. I really hope that's not what they're doing with that, ultimately. Yeah, me too. Um, that would be just... It'd be so much more interesting to have that. But but again, I can't invest in that love triangle uh, or whatever they're trying to do until I know anything about her. And I still mm -hmm. feel like I don't know a single thing about her. I know she likes bicycles. I know stuff that she knows, but I don't know how she feels about it. Because they keep wanting to play the Enigma, you know, line with her. And that just, at a certain point, then I just don't know anything about her. So all I know is that she's pretty, and Bertie thinks she's pretty, and that's it. Yeah. Um, the, they may, there's still time. There's what, there's 10 episodes in the season? Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's time to do that. So hopefully, because I, I think they've done a good job uh, fleshing out other characters similarly. So, you know, there's room to be... There's room and reason to be optimistic, but you're right. There's work to be done there. Yeah. Okay, Boardwalk Empire, the main thing I have for this is more time with Chalky. That was fun. More time with Chalky. Uh, I could have, they could have sped the hell up out of this get Kelly McDonald back uh, in scenes with Steve Buscemi because this is, I'm, I, I was just looking, I kind of wanted to tap my metaphorical watch and say, guys, you're working with a short season. Let's get to that faster because we knew that was, that, that was going to happen. 
Um, it is kind of compelling that they kept them apart for so long, and I, I'm looking forward to next week to see how those interactions work. I also just love Kelly McDowell in general. I think she's an, an incredible actress. Um, beyond that, it was sort of a transitional episode. I don't really know how I'm supposed to feel about these flashbacks. I feel like they romanticize um, Nucky to a degree that I'm kind of uncomfortable with. I won't say that they aren't doing that. Um, I think that we can't, we, we'll have to see exactly how they play out to know. And, and this is not a first person perspective character, like something like Outlander is where it would just feel clear that these would be memories. And so therefore this romanticized notion could fit very well with that, with his memories of, of those, of that time. Um, I don't feel like he, I mean, we've talked about this previously. It doesn't feel like anything here is particularly new information. So it doesn't feel particularly simplified to me because it just sort of fits. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I'm fine with it. This, this really the season, this episode, I, I enjoyed this episode. I've enjoyed the season so far. Um, and again, the show has really benefited for me from not having to review it week to week, uh, because I just can enjoy my time in the world and then it's over. And I don't have deeper thoughts about most of it. I don't really, I'm not, very curious what's going to happen next. It'll be nice when Michael Shannon pops up. It'll be nice when Gretchen Mall pops back up. And that's about all I got. Yeah. Well, it, Boardwalk Empire, I think, is kind of a hard show to write about because a lot of the time, to me, it doesn't feel like it has a deeper level. It's it's kind of a whole... It has many, many layers of surface level, if that makes any sense. <laughs> I guess, yeah. That, that does make sense. Um, do you have any... Final thoughts on Boardwalk Empire, or shall we uh, jump to Masters of Sex? Let's do that, because we're already running long. We're running so long. <laughs> Last week, we got in, in a little bit of a tiff, and uh, this week, I feel like that's going to have to go a whole other direction. Well, yeah. Last week, of course, you guys can go back and listen to our episode from last week, because the first scene that we got with Austin and, uh, oh, goodness, what's her name? Artemis from... <laughs> Artemis from Always Sunny. She'll always, always be Artemis to me. Well, and you know, it's so fun to see her pop up, that actress pop up on uh, Garfunkel and Oates as well this week. She's been, uh, she was everywhere on my TV this week, and that's made me very happy. Um, yeah, so we talked, we had a, a strong difference of opinion about how that scene played last week. This week, uh, I think that um, if we had our conversation from last week about this week, I'd be with Sean, where I'd say that we're both right, because some of these scenes are played clearly or not even seen some of the parts of these scenes are played directly for comedy and some of them are played for pathos and i'm sorry you don't get to be all wacky music oh isn't it so funny and then immediately oh this is the the devastating face of sexual assault you don't get to have them both in the course of one scene and if you're gonna try you gotta at least keep the character who's feeling like he's who feels assaulted, he needs to be consistent in that. Uh, which scenes in particular were you thinking showed the face of sexual assault? They keep cutting. They keep giving um, Austin, I don't want to be here. This is so invasive. Uh, this is uh, crushing my soul reactions at the ends of these scenes. Which, uh, you know, if if the show wants to show us, wants that to be in any way devastating... It has to show me how, oh boy, how do I, how do I phrase this? Because of the way, because of the cumulative effect of those scenes, 
I don't know that our cutaways to Austin aren't just, this is the look of a man who is having sex with someone he does not want to be having sex with. And there's a difference, you know? There, Yes, that is that is different. But, I, you know, I, I think this week they... First of all, this week they have her completely acknowledge that what she's doing. She's fully aware of what she's doing. And that uh, this is... She's, you know, forcing him to have sex with her if he wants to keep his job. Um, they, they, there's, they pull the punches on that and they have, they make herself aware to an extent, um, which is very interesting. I think, I think, I think this episode is very interesting on her perspective on all of this. I think it, you know, that is really well handled, I think, but, uh, the tone, just the, the tonal whiplash is completely undermining anything they could be trying to say. I'm not sure what they're trying to say because they keep trying to have their cake and eat it and, and you, you don't get to. Again, it's only whiplash if you think that what they're going for is the devastating aftermath of sexual assault, which I don't think was honestly ever on their minds, but we'll have to put that aside for a bit. Uh, I will say that her speech about self-awareness and her talking about her desires, I think those were the best parts of the episode uh, as individual parts, whether you thought they worked as the whole or not. in you know the general scheme of the episode of the series is another thing but i think as moments they were fantastic uh there were a few moments in the episode that i thought were really poignant and effective even while i thought this is not a compelling direction for the season to go it's been a weird season of masters of sex for me and it was a weird episode you know individual scenes to me held individual scenes and individual moments in those scenes held great power even while I watched the, the the episode in the season thinking, I don't know why this was the, the story they decided to go with. Would you connect Libby to that? Yes, definitely. Um, I mean, earlier in the season, her the, the story of Libby's racism uh, was almost in some of the hardest, possibly the hardest TV of 2014 to watch. Um, and this is a year that contained the Nick <laughs> and Gotham. Um you know, it was, but it made sense for the character and it made sense for uh, the setting. And then to have that turn into more of a far from heaven situation, for lack of a better analogy, um, I guess that's one way to play it. It certainly makes Libby more sympathetic than when she was just a racist. <laughs> um, but then again, there's also sort of queasy layers of possible racism even in that scene. And that's all very interesting to think about. Uh, I'm not sure what it adds to Masters of Sex as a whole, but like I said, there's these moments that are really compelling or scenes that are really compelling, even though uh, in the great scheme of things, I'm not really sure what they're meant to add to the show. Well, this definitely does feel like it's, um, the stuff with Libby here does feel like it's in a different show. Um, It's part of a different show. I do think it works and works well. And I like this progression of her, because again, keep in mind, this is now two years later after the stuff with Coral. So she, that's get you know, she very well could have been kind of ruminating on this, had her racism, you know, pointed out to her, made very clear. Um, at least that's how she, she is seen by somebody like Robert back when the stuff with Coral first broke down and then, you know, cut two years later, she runs into him again. And that leads to this other stuff, you know, I, and I don't think it, that her, um, her hooking up with, uh, with Robert hooking up with her having sex with Robert, I don't think, uh, undermines that. And I don't think it makes, 
her a bored housewife who just wants to have sex with Robert, and that's why she's been doing all of this. I I don't think it changes or, or undermines her actual dedication to this, um, to to core and to what what she's been doing there. I still believe in that for her. I believe her, um, and I like that progression. I, and again, like the start of the season stuff was like you said, very hard to watch. But I love that a show was actually showing this. I love that they were not right, backing yeah. down from it, especially a period piece because so few of them do. I thought it was really great, and um, having a character. I mean, there's. I get very tired of this notion that characters never change or that people never change, that a lot of shows love to hit that, you know, really beat that drum. So having a character have her bubble popped a little bit and realize, oh, crap, maybe I am a horrible racist. Maybe I should think about how I interact with the world and then change when she doesn't like what, when she looks at herself and doesn't like what she sees. That is really refreshing to me. Um, How it all ties together, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. But, um... Obviously, I mean, I think those two have had chemistry from the first time he was on screen with her. So I wasn't hugely surprised to see how it goes. I like how aware they make both of them. It's not like, oh, really? Huh. I never thought about you that way. You know, I like that mm-hmm. they don't, you know, they aren't precious about that either. Um, so, yeah, it does feel completely disconnected with a lot of what's going on elsewhere. Uh, Todd Vanderwerf wrote up a, a very interesting piece about this episode where he says it's basically three different shows uh, so the stuff with um, with Austin, the stuff with Libby, and the stuff with uh, Bill and Ginny are just three completely different shows in this episode. Uh, and I don't disagree, um, but I, I, I've been enjoying the Libby show. Yeah, and and just having sex as the connective tissue is a little bit vague. Yeah, I would agree. Now, what any thoughts on Bill and Ginny? Um, only that it, I feel like their relationship really underlines that it's so hard to write a consistently compelling show that is so much organized around a re- one relationship. And I think that the show's tackled that with gusto yet. I, th- I th- feel like for me after a while, I, I do, they grow wearisome to me to watch sort of have these, you know, variations of these battles over and over. And yet you get to the end of the episode with that very tender moment between them where, you know, he, uh, Masters has that moment of he's had to be on television and that sort of that brings up a whole lot of other stuff. And he has this moment of highly unstereotypically masculine um, uh, just insecurity and and just being so uncomfortable in his own skin and then having to be comforted for that. And it's to me an amazing moment, uh, but it was kind of a slog to get there for me this week. <laughs> Yeah, I liked a lot of what we got with Bill and Ginny, and I really appreciated that they did did give him that one scene of uh, of actually being able to talk successfully on camera. I don't know how accurate or honest that would be for that character, but I, I really like, you know, it's, it's a small victory. You know, I really like that they had that. And that last scene, like you said, was very, uh, very powerful and successful. I liked what we got with uh, Ginny's um, family, her her kids and her ex. You know, Matthew Zickel is just so much fun. Newsreaders is coming back, by the way, soon for its next season. Um, so I always enjoy him. And, yeah, I like that they've really fleshed him out a little bit more and um, made him... We, we, this is our first time really spending time with him since the time jump. And I like that in, in the past two years, he's grown up a little bit too, which is nice. Um, so yeah, in general, I like this episode and I like what we got here. There's a lot of, um, I guess, setup for the finale. So how everything comes together in the finale next week should be interesting. 
Yes, it's funny you mentioned the time jump, and this is it's really difficult to keep track of of how time works on Masters of Sex. Yeah. Uh, maybe deliberately so, or maybe not, but it's it's certainly something to think about. Uh, yeah, Masters of Sex is, is consistently a show I want to love more than I actually do. But I still, I still very much enjoy it, and I like thinking about it. Yeah, and we'll spend a little bit more time probably with it um, looking back at the season um, next week with the finale. But for now, let's go on to the Good Wife premiere. The line, of course, like we've said several times, your review is up at Sound On Sight. Uh, before this aired, I this was one that I got a chance to see before it aired, um, but I, then I couldn't really talk about it. Pretty much all I could say was, it's good, guys. Um, we'll talk after it airs. Uh, <laughs> and you were giving me a hard time about being so cagey. Now that you've seen it, I totally I mean, get it. You totally get it. Holy crap, right? I sat down to watch this um with my cousin who's never seen doesn't really watch TV and had never seen one second of The Good Wife before. So I gave her some basic setup and then we sat down to watch this. First of all, even by Good Wife standards, that first act, which I according to my watch was about 13 minutes before the title uh page uh splash um was insanely breathless like this is something they've got down to an art at this point but even for them this episode just uh my headline for the reviews hits the ground sprinting i don't really know how else to put it it opens moments from actually a little bit of overlap but basically moments from where the last season picked off and then you think you have an idea of what the episode will be like and then you're wrong and then carrie gets arrested and then you have an idea of what the episode will be like and then you're again wrong and yeah just so many amazing moments uh so much humor so much uh satisfying cynical darkness uh everything that i love about the good wife in one handy one hour long package package well and i love that they spend all this time in the finale setting up the next season and we think we know what that's going to be because they did it last year uh they said you know they've done that several times set up the new season in and tease it in the finale and then oh, we get to you know think about it all summer and then they outdo themselves in the premiere by taking this uh this new idea and really running with it and, and having it be great but like you said this they 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 uh set up they start to do all the Diane stuff um and then they just go nope Carrie's in jail Lamont Bishop that's that's what's happening now guys and i love that they do that yeah, and the fact that oh, there's so many good things about this. Where do I even start? I mean, actually, maybe it's I'll start with the the, the only thing that I didn't really like. The show will always have a problem with Kalinda and her quasi not quite love interests or characters that she's entangled with, and I still don't care about Sophia Russo, the lawyer, <laughs> whatever it is. She is. She's not. She's not a lawyer. She's a Kalinda, yeah, she's basically. No, I don't really know what she is. Anyway, the fact that I don't know what she is points to the fact that. We, they need to do some more work with her if we're going to care about her because she plays a pivotal role in this episode and I still don't know what her job title is. Um, anyway, that's... they. The, the, I, I still wait for the season where, where they have the perfect Kalinda C-plot and it may never happen. But regardless, that was really my only problem with this episode because there was just so much good. Uh, I love David Lee and Lewis Canning just perched like horrible vultures in the middle of any given room. Uh, trying to suss out the situation. I loved Eli's daughter, Marissa, uh, who needs to... Uh, the fact that she's in this opening episode, I'm I'm hoping means that she'll be in more of this season because apparently she hasn't been on the show since like 2011, which was shocking to me because I feel like we just saw her. 
nope, it's been quite a while. We, when we last saw her, she uh, America Ferreira was the thing, was the love interest for Eli. So that's it's been a while. Uh, she's great, and her miming skills were <laughs> spectacular. Mm-hmm. Um, or rather, her voiceover skills. Um, I my favorite bit of like legal minutia that we picked up this week is the fact that apparently it takes two years to get bail money back. Mm-hmm. Apparently. Which- Damn. <laughs> I like, you know, there's there's just, there's a lot that I really liked about this premiere. And there's, you know, like the, the fun stuff that you learn, the handling of uh, the the stuff with uh, uh, Carrie was really good. Um, the setup, we get, everything we get with Eli is, is very interesting and or is very fun. You know, the, the Eli comedy hour, it remains a definite highlight for the show. Um like you said, David Lee and uh, Canning are just a blast at being evil, just like straight up cackly, you know, evil geniuses or whatever. Uh, that's that's just always going to be fun for me. Um, the the continually murky waters of Alicia. I mean, this episode doesn't let you hide from the fact that they are mob lawyers. They're like, mm-hmm. you know, like there's no getting around it. Like we like Alicia; she's our hero. You know, we love Alicia even. Um, she represents a killer, a ruthless killer. If they tell, if they try to help Carrie by telling who the um, the source of the information is, that person will be executed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that they don't gloss over that at all. And there's no reason to think that Carrie didn't do what he's been accused of. I mean, the fact mm-hmm. that there's a recording helps, but you know, there's no reason to think that they, if they get him out, it won't necessarily be by disproving that he did it. They may have to do it some other more weaselly way, and it. Also, it could happen in two weeks. It could happen in six weeks. It could never happen because it's the good wife and we don't know. And that is a thing of beauty. I'm trying to think of other things uh, to mention that were amazing because there's just so much. Uh, we we got Fred Melamed as the judge this week, which is always fun. Uh, definitely. Uh, my only question about this one is with the Carrie stuff, which I very much enjoyed, is it a little too uh, Will 2.0? Um, in the set, in which sense? Of the, did he do something illegal? Is, you know, the suspicion thrown on him? I mean, there's obviously a different twist with all the Lamont Bishop stuff, but it it was very familiar to me of, like, you have the upstanding client, uh, um, member of the partnership and you have the the more, sh- is are they shady? Uh, did they blur the line too much? I feel like it has a different dynamic because we don't, we, we don't spend as much time with Carrie as we did with Will, and he's not part of a theoretical romantic triumvirate, aside from the Kalinda thing, which I don't really want to think about. Um, so I, I feel like it brings a different dynamic. And also, um, there's just something, the fact that he's actually in jail and we see that whole process, uh, I feel like that throws, at least, even just visually, uh, them getting to play with that and just bringing a totally different... Uh, feel to those scenes almost feel it almost feels like and i hate to bring up the wire um but uh you know in the wire when they add another layer of this is another thing we're depicting this season it almost feels like now we get to go into jail and see what's going on <laughs> there and we, we we spend time with um with carrie and lockup i don't know i, I to, to me getting to sort of widen their visual language a little bit more and uh and up the stakes uh in a way that they didn't get to do with that Will storyline by having Carrie in actual physical danger, I think makes it different enough uh, to be compelling. Uh, and I haven't even mentioned, of course, the actual scene of bloodletting in this episode, which, ah, 
have have the kings just become adrenaline junkies lately because i'm totally into it uh you know who knows we'll have to see if they continue this in the next episode but um the last thing i'll mention here is that a fun side uh a fun um just like side benefit of this carrie storyline is that it really for me puts peter's time in jail in a new context from earlier in the series um, now we're getting Carrie's experience. I mean, but you can't imagine that Peter first being arrested and thrown into Gen Pop and all this other stuff was that less traumatic of an experience for him. So, you know, I think that's an interesting thing to think about as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, last thing I'll mention was having Carrie's dad only cough up eight grand was a fantastic bit of serious memory because I would I would otherwise never have remembered that Carrie's dad was an asshole. Yeah, a rich asshole certainly. Um, Yep. We'll see if he pops back up over the course of the season. I mean, there's so much room to have him pop back up. We'll see if they do it or not. Or if this is their way of mentioning it and then moving on. Um, It could go either way. But what wins your week in drama? Really? Come on. It's The Good Wife. Um, And you can read my review for way too... I think I ended up at like about 1,200 words on that. And I wrote them breathlessly in about 90 minutes. And uh, it should have been it, it actually went against our format for me to go that long. So I'll try not to do that later. But I had I there were many thoughts. Yeah, I, I totally feel you. Um, I, you gave it to the Good Wife premiere. I'm going to give it to the Honorable Woman finale and uh, with an honorable mention to the Good Wife premiere, which is also excellent. A um, lot to love about about those episodes. So um, I will leave it there, though. Well, now we'll take a quick break and come back with a very truncated pilot and premiere preview. Trials are today. I want to be ready. Lock down that point guard spot. There's no point guards in field hockey, Dad. Field hockey? My name is Andre Johnson. I have a great career, a spectacular house, and a loving family I'm surrounded by every day. Hey, Pop. Son, can I just please get a little coffee in me before you start this morning? But as a black man with all the success, sometimes I feel like an oddity. If you look to your left, You'll see the mythical and majestic Black family. Lately, I feel in order to make it, we've all dropped a little of our culture. What's up, Andy? Sup? Andy? That's not even close to Andre. I think it says I'm edgy but approachable. I think it says I hate my father and I play field hockey. You think I'm overreacting, babe? Why would I think you would overreact? Maybe you're right, babe. I love you. I love you, too. No. <laughs> We're going to keep the uh, the pilot and premiere talk uh, very brief here. We've already gone super long on the podcast, so I'm just going to quickly run through all of this. Uh, tonight, as this as, as we record, uh, NCIS, NCIS New Orleans, Person of Interest, S.H.I.E.L.D. and Chicago Fire are all back. Wednesday, tomorrow, Survivor, The Middle, The Goldbergs, Law and Order SVU, Modern Family, Chicago PD, and Nashville are all back. Premiering is Blackish, which is a new comedy sitcom on ABC, uh, starring Anthony Anderson, as well as uh, Tracy Ellis Ross, Lawrence Fishburne, and uh, a, a handful of adorable Moppets as children. Uh, this is very promising. People should check it out. And I'm, I may have only left a little bit in this premiere, but I really like this, the tone of it. And my only concern about it is that the it very much has the the Larry Wilmore feel. That, you know, I, I could really easily see him as the lead in this. I mean, Anthony Anderson basically feels like he's channeling Larry Wilmore on The Daily Show uh, for this first episode, for this pilot. So given that he is now left to go do the Minority Report or Minority Report, I don't know how they're going to whether there's going to be a T or not on the end of that. Um, I, I I just hope that they're able to maintain that and 
and build from there and get some more actual like laugh lines and some more humor, laugh out loud humor. I know a lot of people have really enjoyed this pilot. I think it's a very strong one and definitely worth checking out. Um, that's this Wednesday on ABC. On Thursday, Parenthood, Bones, Grey's Anatomy, and Scandal are all back. How to Get Away with Murder is is the new premiere. That's on ABC. That one is solid. I'm not very uh, interested in this one. They have a sort of a flashback device. There are two timelines that are being told simultaneously. The one, uh, the earlier one, will theoretically catch up to the present day. Um, where the flashbacks are coming from, or just, you know, the narr- the cutting back and forth between the two, where, you know, there's an earlier point and a later point. Uh, there's a group of law students, first-year law students, taking a class called, uh, I think it's Criminal Law 100, or as the teacher prefers to call it, the Viola Davis character, How to Get Away with Murder. So we're going to have a case of the week. Likely, we're going to have the first-year law students seeing what they can come up with to help with that case, uh, that defense. We get some interpersonal stuff. We get one of those law character law students' neighbors. We get uh, Liza Liza Weil, Liza Wheel, and uh, one other actor as the like the TAs basically, or like a level in between the law students and Viola Davis's character. There's some interpersonal stuff with the with Davis's character as well, whose name escapes me at the moment. Uh, this is it's fairly slick, and um, I'm sure it it fits very well with Scandal and uh, Grey's Anatomy. So I think it'll you know, do very nicely in that slot. I'm not as compelled by it. Um, I think the hook at the end of the, the surprise at the end of the pilot is supposed to hook you and it, it just didn't interest me. So um, whether or not I stick with it is going to come down to just how crazy Thursdays get. And uh, let me, if you guys uh, stick with it and uh, please let me know when it, you know, if it, if it takes the leap, let me know when that is so I can tune back in. Friday, we have The Amazing Race coming back, Shark Tank, Hawaii Five-0, and Blue Bloods. Um, I have not yet decided if there's going to be a, a race, Amazing Race pool this year so if you want there to be one let me know and let me know as soon as you hear this because there's only a few days left to get that set up um i have not seen any of these other premieres so i'll move directly on to sunday this sunday has the premieres of cbs the simpsons once upon a time um the family guy premiere is a simpsons crossover there's also the premiere of resurrection and revenge and the premiere of brooklyn line brooklyn 99 which i have seen it's very fun it's a uh, very much a return to form the show comes back just as entertaining as it left they deal with some of the cliffhangery stuff well. They deal with um, um, Peralta's uh, undercover stint well in this episode. And, uh, you know, they also tease a potential new um, arc, I guess, or, or subplot for the season that I think could bring interesting things. Mostly Andre Brower is deadpan and uh, Andy Samberg is wacky and everybody, I mean, it's... I think people will like this premiere. I know that I did. Very glad to have that show back on. Monday, we'll have Mom, NCIS LA, and Castle all returning. And then next week, Tuesday the 30th, uh, is are the series premieres of Selfie and Manhattan Love Story on ABC. Selfie I've already talked about, but the recut or reshot uh, pilot, there's a certain scenes that have been redone, Has is out now. And I am encouraged by the things that they have changed. They changed the horrible cliched ending to be slightly less cliched and certainly less horrible. Um, so I'm minorly optimistic about that. As for Manhattan Love Story, I've already given my thoughts on that in our Sound Insight uh, TV preview. And uh, yeah, I this just I mean, Annalie Tipton is adorable and she's so likable in this, but just it's not good. It's just not good. So 
don't watch that one. Um, and that wraps up our pilot and premiere look at this week. Um, this has been a crazy long podcast. Um, but uh, with no further ado, a few show notes. You can find a post up for this episode at soundonsite.org where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV, what you are looking forward to that is premiering this week. Um, you can email us at televerse at gmail.com. We're in iTunes with an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed where we would love to get a new rating or review from, from you. It does help other people find the show. You can like us on Facebook to follow the, the goings on at Soundonsite TV as well as for Simon and myself. And you can always reach us on Twitter. I am at the television Simon. You are at sucker Howell. And so, and Simon, what is the question of the week? Uh, well, I guess we may as well throw the Gotham question out there. Um, am I wrong? Did I just watch it at the wrong time of night? Uh, is it weird that there were plot holes and agonizing problems with the show that were so that stuck in my cross so much that I actually dreamt about them? <laughs> Um, just let me know. Uh, good question. Uh, we already know my thoughts, but I look forward to hearing what everybody else has to say. Uh, so that wraps up our week in TV and a uh, little look at this week's pilots and premieres. So now we'll take a break and come back with Ophelia Tesla from Eat the Rudecast and the Kinky Geeks to take a look at forensics on TV. So we'll be right back after this. <laughs> the televerse this is kate kalzik joined as ever by simon howell and it's a podcast episode that ends in a zero which means it's time for another informed opinions and i'm very excited this week because we'll be talking about uh forensics and forensic science and biology stuff you can tell how much i know about this but thankfully (laughs) we have a guest and joining us this week is ophelia tesla from eat the rudecast and from uh, the kinky geeks uh ophelia welcome to the podcast Hi, thank you. Glad to be here. There are so many shows that take advantage of uh, of forensics in in their approach, and I mean it's just inherent in you know crime procedurals and and serial dramas as well. Oh, and before mm-hmm. I get ahead of myself, oh yeah, we should say, uh, uh, Ophelia, uh, you have a background in in some of this. You have a degree in um, in pre-med and biology and yep. years of study of forensic science. Um, it's a really fascinating topic, it seems to me. It is. It's 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 one of the things that draw me or drew me to it was that it's solving puzzles. And that's one of my things. I like to constantly challenge myself and constantly try to solve puzzles. And this is like the highest elevated puzzle solving I could I could find in all of the different biology pathways. So uh, pathology being my main one, you know, why do people get sick and why do people die? And then of course, forensics, you add that to it. And then that just, the, the puzzle gets more and more complicated, the more pieces you have. Well, and maybe that's part of why it, 
lends itself so well to TV, specifically uh, network TV. There's a lot of it on network TV, but to oh, yeah. TV in general, because uh, you know, once <laughs> once it was okay to show this stuff on TV, I feel like CSI was a big show in introducing viewers to this concept. And after that, it feels like the floodgates opened, and every every show, every cop show, every uh, medical show has some element of this in here. Oh, absolutely. Um, they have really gotten into what goes on behind the scenes. I mean, Dexter really went into it. Uh, that was his profession. So you see him in the in the lab doing the blood spatter analysis, which is a lot of math and nowhere near as fun as they depict it. <laughs> like it doesn't it doesn't look like that in practical. And and that's the thing. A lot of it doesn't look the way they portray it. It's not that fast. You don't get results that quickly. Doing a fingerprint analysis can take months sometimes to just find a, a match. I'm sure it's gotten better when we had the police officers or the police departments blending with the FBI, which for the longest time they didn't get along. So a lot of that data was kept separate. Now it's put together and you have a much larger system to draw that information from. But I mean, they're showing you getting a fingerprint analysis instantly. Like he would sit at his computer, hit a button, hit a button, scan a, a, a fingerprint. And then he knew where the person lived. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> that is so not how that works. I mean, there are people that are being seriously hunted, not just for somebody's hobby of where do you live, but like seriously being hunted. And it takes time to to try to match and put those types of things in. And and a lot of it's inadmissible because if you have a smudge, I mean, fingerprints alone, I could probably talk for a whole podcast. And this is fascinating to me. Oh, for the, before I forget, I, I do need to ask. So is that like, ser to your knowledge, is that a, like a serious thing with like, the 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 FBI and the local cops not playing well that is actually a thing that was a, an issue for a while oh it still is it's the the issue is unfortunately um and and I won't say that it it's still as bad because I have heard from both sides that there's a lot more cooperation happening but uh what it did seem to be was they wanted to be the one to make the catch and it it was um publicity maybe it was part to further a political career um there was an actual like competition and i mean honestly i know that there's still competition even with firefighters and police officers i mean that is actually a thing there is the like, fbi and police officers the smaller the community you go into Absolutely. That competition is still alive. But bigger cities that realize they have bigger problems and they need to get over themselves and cooperate or else it's not going to get any better. That's where you see a lot more of the cohesion between FBI agents and, and police officers. But that is absolutely a thing. And for a long time, their data systems like the information they would keep on file for their arrests was kept separately. That just so that yeah. is fascinating to me, just because it seems like it's such a basic. Like when you watch, and it, maybe it also has to do with it being such a familiar thing for, um, I don't know, like watching shows like The X Files, where you're following FBI agents who go into a town, and then it's convenient for there to be conflict. You know, like there's it comes it up convenient. as a narrative device so much that you feel like it it can't really be a thing. But that's that is interesting. <laughs> totally true. And I wanted to make a throwback to Quincy M. E. He was my first uh, exposure to 
um, a medical examiner on television. So I loved that show back when, you know, when I was a little kid watching that on TV, Solving Mysteries. That does feel like it's a big one for me. Simon, do you have, uh, have you seen any Quincy, Quincy Emmy? I, I haven't seen any Quincy Emmy. I was just going to add, though, that in addition to the X-Files, it's definitely a staple sequence of, I think, any and every cop show ever of, you know, the, the murder case that is that is getting too big and, and someone it representing the feds comes in and, th and thinks about, oh, this might look good for federal jurisdiction. And they have to prove that it's local to keep the feds buzzing off their backs. I guess that's True. not so far off. No. Reality. That is reality. I've I've had several, not just you know the the science, but I also had taken criminal justice courses that were taught by um, one was taught by a police officer and one was taught by a judge. And we also had you know guest speakers that would come in from the FBI and my forensic science classes. And we th those are some of the questions the students would ask: Is this really a thing? Is there really a competition between? police officers and FBI agents. And that's actual, yes, that is actually a thing. It not, it needs to not be, but it is. Going back to the, the fingerprint uh, thing, I got to ask when you're watching these shows and they're talking about, you know, it's a 10 point match. It's a 15 point match. It's only a five point match. And then the cops just like run with that. Does that ever, I feel like that would have to drive you nuts once you actually knew anything about this. It does. It it drives me nuts mostly because they get the results so quickly and that's not realistic. Um, they're solving, but I understand for television and for time's sake, they really do have to speed that up. And I've also been told, I don't, I don't know how accurate this is because I've never been in a TV studio where this discussion has taken place, but they sometimes don't like to let the public know exactly how long it takes to analyze DNA or to analyze fingerprints and things like that, because then they might have an idea of how to cover it up and they mm. don't want to give that information, which makes sense. We have actually had, um, and it's been depicted in real shows, law and order, because they like to pull a lot from news headlines, um, where you get, um, somebody who has learned from television shows how to cover things up, but they don't have the whole picture because they try to leave out some of the specifics and the details on purpose. Well, I know that was the thing with um, Breaking Bad where they the reason they had Walt come up with his special blue meth was because right. the, the FDA or the... Uh, the, the um, yeah, it would be FDA for yeah, the, the FDA. drugs. Yeah, they, they were like, by the way... Please stop telling people how to make really good math. Right. Uh, <laughs> could, could you not actually show the ingredients that are necessary? Yeah. Uh, so that, that that's a that's interesting as well. And and you know, I because you'd think that being a little bit more straightforward with that as a narrative uh, stand from a narrative standpoint would allow you to to commit more fully to the the cop who plays by their gut. Because you, if you wait around for the fingerprints to come in, that might be a month from now and everybody, you know, your witnesses will be gone and your, you know, your other information just, you know, kind of taking away that element of the magical, you know, science is magic solution right. of the CSIs you think would lead, lead uh, lend itself well to more of a, I don't know, instinct driven uh, detective, which seems to be a popular character. Yes. And that is that is good. That is actually a part of the puzzle. It, it causes well, I wouldn't say it causes, but it lends itself to. Um, OK, so you have an instinct um, and you think this person might be the person you get 
um, like say for example, a seven point match and it's reasonably certain. Okay. If you left that process, that, that, uh, giant computer, supercomputer analyzing that data running for however long it takes to find the rest of the matches in that meantime, you could take that as a reason to look further, just like how lie detector tests aren't used in court because it's only a, a slight indicator of something being off. Um, it, it's enough to say, okay, this fingerprint matches just so far. Um, DNA obviously being a completely separate monster, um, but maybe a blood match, a blood type match could mm -hmm. be enough for you to look at a suspect, to question a suspect, and then use that to further your um, your investigation. But it, of course, it's not something that you're going to be bringing up to a judge and saying, here, look at seven points. That means it's this guy. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like another thing that I, I always hear, but I, I never quite get definitive information on, is that DNA evidence in general is much more fallible than we get the sense of on television. I feel like the only show that kind of, um, that kind of reflects that idea is maybe Rectify. I don't know if you've seen that. But I haven't. Other than that, it's on Sundance. It's really good. You should watch it. Um, I'm writing it down right now. <laughs> boom. Yes, one more rectified person. <laughs> but um, I feel like other than that, DNA is very often treated as like, oh, there's DNA evidence now. It's open and shut. Whereas, you know, DNA evidence, okay, they, that means they touched them at some point or they were in the room at some point. Exactly. You could have DNA evidence from the person who cleaned the room um, in a hotel room. It could be the cleaning lady. It could be room service. It could be, you could be so many different people. And when you go through and collect that evidence, you've got to filter all those people out. You have to get a list of everybody who could have possibly had a reason to be in that room, including the guests before or after, if there was a before and after guest of whatever situation happened in a room, or they come to find out a situation happened in a room and they're uh, investigating afterwards, uh, you have to get the names of all those people. And then you have to extrapolate who doesn't belong in this picture, who doesn't belong in this room. That takes so much time. That My sounds number... exhausting. <laughs> it is. My number one pet peeve is how they all, okay. There's probably several, but they always seem to pick up in CSI. And I know it's for film, but I know other shows have done it the right way. They pick up DNA evidence or swabs of blood or whatnot and put it into plastic containers. That is such a no-no. That breaks down and adds moisture to the DNA sample. By the time you get it to a lab, it means nothing. And then there are some shows that do it right. And I get so happy and giddy and excited when they put it in a brown paper bag or they put it into, um, you know, like one of those little pharmaceutical envelopes, the tiny little ones, mm -hmm. or they'll put a hair in there. And I'm like, oh, look, they're doing it right. They're doing it right. That's where it's supposed to go. <laughs> so those evidence bags that we always see that are clear with like the red sticker on it, that's that's a no-no? That's a no-no. Um, you definitely want it to be in a cardboard box if it's a larger um, container of, of things. Or um, I know some of them were gruesome and gory body parts. That you just want to make sure it doesn't get warm. It has to be chilled. And you would, I mean, obviously, if you have that much, you're going to be able to extract DNA. That's not a problem. But if you're trying to... Um, preserve a smaller piece of, you know, biohazardous material. Um, you definitely want that bag to be opened. 
not sealed and um, it it could theoretically be put into plastic, but anything smaller like, you know, a fingernail or hair that has to be or a swab has to be put into a paper bag or cardboard, but definitely not those, you know, evidence bags with the Ziploc top. It's just I know that they do it just so they can, you know, hold it up so that there can be a close up shot uh, with the camera. But no, absolutely not. Do not put the hair in plastic bags. It's so bad. Well, see, I'm trying to think of, because, you, you know, you said that it always makes you happy when you see a show that does it right. Yes. yes. I can't think of a single one. I mean, does they, it? Um, I'm remembering in Bones, they mm-hmm. do that sometimes. They do pick up evidence that goes into paper. Um, but Bones definitely does a whole lot of other things wrong, according my to my background in forensic anthropology. You can't look at a skull and know exactly that it's a male or female and how approximately the age. There's so much more detail that has to be done under a microscope for you to know that stuff. It's true. You can totally sex the person by looking at their bones, but not just walking up not and eyeballing looking down. It. <laughs> not eyeballing it. I'm sorry. Nobody's brain or eyeballs are that good. <laughs> they just aren't. Hey, she's magic. Right. No, I I know. And Kathy, Kathy Reichs even knows when she writes that in that she's she's stretching it. She's mm-hmm. definitely stretching it. Well, what are some other elements that that stand out to you? Or are there other shows that really, you know, that 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 do it right? Oh, my goodness. Not not that do it all right. No, there there really isn't anything that I can point to that is realistic, that hasn't somehow fouled up and done something that's that's not plausible, Um, Mm -hmm. whether it be the time that they get results in or whether or not they collect it properly. Um, I feel like the, the wire definitely made a point of making everything take a really long time. They did. And The Wire was a wonderful show. And I would watch something even if it took longer to resolve the issue because there's so much more that does go on, albeit not a, not as much of it as flashy or entertaining. And that's the other thing. How much money they t- portray the lab geeks and the tech people to be making mm-hmm. <laughs> driving in their Escalades. That is so unrealistic. <laughs> You do not make that much money. You'd be driving a beat-up old car that you're lucky to get from point A to point B. It's not a lavish lifestyle by any means. And, I, you know, the forensic pathologists aside, because, yes, they do make the big money because they're the ones who are most likely going to be put on stage with, you know, or on, on the on the bench with the courts and their uh, proceedings and giving their testimony for all the work that the tech people have done. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's fun to think about. They're driving the Escalades and the Porsches, but not the tech people. (laughs) Well, that's, uh, you know, obviously with Eat the Rootcast, you spent a lot of time looking at uh, Hannibal. Uh, How how do you feel like that show does with its tech trio in in the first season? They do pretty good. Um, They haven't done anything like, oh, let's take this image and zoom way in and get some really good information off this license plate. Cause yeah, that's another thing you can't do. <laughs> um, yeah, they, they haven't done anything that's been grossly out play, uh, out of place, but the one thing that does get me is the totem. Mm. 
the totem is extremely unrealistic as far as um, what the body does when it goes through its stages of decomposition. And it would be very hard to create a sculpture like that without, um, well, I won't say that. I don't know if you are familiar with the body world's exhibits uh, where mm -hmm. they do the, the plastinization, where they would inject the body with plastic. Okay, I'll give you that. But still, you're talking about a process they don't even touch on the show. It's just like, oh, okay, there's these bodies. They were made into a totem. They froze and then were, you know, somehow erected in this large sculpture. And I'm just, no, that's not <laughs> really not likely. And then the age of the killer of the week, um, the gentleman who supposedly yes. was his body of work. How in the world did he put that together? Because we're talking thousands of pounds that those were there's a lot of people i'm imagining a complex pulley system is really the only thing that works for me so but mostly i just try not to think about it because yeah there'd have to be a very big pulley system and not just that but where did it go when he was done and somebody mm -hmm. must have helped him because to not just hold the rope of the pulley system or to secure it but then to somehow um, let go like well, what would he have done to attach it to some, like what was it attached by or with mm -hmm. that body the bodies would have ended up in a pile before anybody would have noticed I think is even if he did get it uh, you know erected into the statue it would not have lasted for very long because it just the decomp would would not allow for it it would have been the most depressing and disturbing uh, sad trombone moment ever <laughs> yes. my masterpiece <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, you come back in half an hour and it's just, you know, completely fallen apart. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Well, what, one of the other, other things we should touch on is, of course, as autopsies, our, our yes. uh, autopsies. And, you know, one of the shows that I never, when I first watched it, when it was on, it never really occurred to me. When I went back uh, comparatively recently and watched a bunch of it, I was struck that there's basically an autopsy, what feels like every episode, at least for a while. And that's the X-Files. Um, oh, Yeah. That though that fe always feels more realistic, and um, you know, like especially the way that S Will Scully will just randomly be like, "Oh, I'm hungry." Uh, yeah. Oh my goodness, that totally happened to me. I have to tell you about a coroner that I was I was in the autopsy room, and they were they were looking at lung tissue, and he said, "You know, this looks like sausage. I really want a pizza," <laughs> and I'm sitting there. Like uh, my early 20s going, um, what? <laughs> like, I think I should leave now. I'm a little creeped out. <laughs> well, I thought I was gross for watching the Nick at lunch today and eating pork belly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's something you have to get over, though. I had Cadaver Lab at 8 a.m. every Friday morning. If I didn't get over it, I was starving for the rest of my classes. I... And then I started seeing things that look like food while I was working in the cadaver lab or if I did any extra hours to study, go into the cadaver lab and go, hmm, I want some steak or hmm, I want some soup. And it's just like, wow, after I just saw that, that I had to kind of just push past it, like compartmentalize that. Like, OK, this is my class and I'm learning about these things and the fact that I need to eat to survive is completely different. <laughs> I think one of the things that most shows tend to do with autopsies, 
is I feel like very few shows really demonstrate how just how significant a process it is that it's very invasive it's it's everything it's a huge process it, they kind of want to just like wave their hands over a, a corpse and then just hand the detectives a series of information to help them catch the baddie um, right but it's an it's a long it's a lengthy process yes if you've ever watched dr g um that's somewhat of a relatively realistic depiction you know it's an almost an all day you might have one assistant and to do one autopsy where it's pretty reasonable you even know the answer to why or how the person died and you just need confirmation so um there was a couple of episodes where they did you know the whole process and what really gets me or got me when i started seeing these is the utensils that they use i always imagined it was similar to surgical equipment so you'd have something that opens the rib cage and you know so that you can weigh the organs and whatever and you of course it's very serious that you put back absolutely everything even in our cadaver labs if something were to fall off onto the floor you had to collect it in a specimen bag on the side because a lot of families were perfectly happy with having the body donated to science but when they did bury the body they wanted all the pieces back so that was another thing you had to keep in mind but the utensils that we used were everyday utensils no joke there were soup ladles Oh, and wow. pruning shears. Wow. Those were those are like I can't go to a hardware store or uh, like a a Wilson and Sonoma and not be like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, like oh my goodness, <laughs> the same things. And it, it makes so much sense. It's especially depicted in Hannibal. Um, it, it's that blend of these everyday items that you would think, okay, I'm using this to cut through the bone on a steak, but if it cuts through the bone on a steak guess what else it cuts through <laughs> bone <laughs> it cuts through bone and we all have them so yeah the when i saw the things that were hanging on the wall and the, or the utensils that the assistants would be washing and it's like that isn't a true like metal soup ladle that is what that is that is a soup ladle <laughs> and it's hanging on the wall in an autopsy room okay like the, uh, several times you kind of have to be like all right all right this is not grossing me out i'm okay i'm okay it, it almost feels like, in a strange sense, Hannibal, of all shows, despite how fantastical it is, kind of gets to the heart of how people in the profession need to see the human body. Mm -hmm. You know, like, oh, we're all just meat, really. We are. And that's that's exactly the, the, the point of when you were first working in that environment as a, you know, a lab tech, or even if it's just in your, you know, education where I had EMTs and nurses fainting when we brought out the cadavers, they couldn't handle it. Like once that body was uncovered, cause they'd only ever seen bodies, uh, you know, in, in real life, they've only ever seen a bleeding person who's asking for help, which to me almost makes me a little bit more unnerved because you've got a stop that bleeding whereas a cadaver it's like okay it's there it's a learning tool but for them it was such a shock to their system that i saw them like dropping like flies and it was like okay so all right we're gonna have to everybody pick this person up bring them outside go get water somebody get a fan like oh no, we've got another cadaver <laughs> right we've gotta we've gotta wake this person up before they become one uh but yeah <laughs> It was it was interesting to see people's reaction to it because you don't you really don't 
have that mindset of what is inside you. It's everything is so visceral on and on the outside. You have input coming from the outside world. You don't really think about what you're made of. And Hannibal does very well remind us, you know what? Your parts are just like animal parts. And more specifically, a lot of medical testing is done on pigs because the larger breeds of pigs, their chest cavities and their hearts and their lungs are very similarly sized. Um, and it's a, it's a very good comparison to work and learn on. A lot of people will learn how to be surgeons on you know, on a pig in a pig lab. They've definitely shown some of that on the Nick this season. Um, the Clive Owen character just hands inside a pig, uh, yep. trying trying out a new type of stitch or something. So that's uh, that's that's very that's very interesting. Uh, one of the the questions I needed to make sure we ask before we run out of time here. We could oh, yeah. talk about this stuff all day. By the way, this Probably. is absolutely <laughs> fascinating. Uh, what are there particular personality types that you see or that you've experienced that are drawn to this because it seems mm. like you, you with <laughs> everybody we've talked to on the you know different of these different different professions different uh you know different experiences uh when they come on here they say yeah there's some of that but for the most part it's all different types of people i'm curious if that holds true with something um that could be so difficult to take if you're the wrong uh, of the wrong mindset or, you know, don't have the right stuff for it, I guess, as as forensics. Absolutely. That I think is is definitely a thing. I won't say that there's a personality type or, you know, generalize the types of things people might enjoy doing in their spare time. Um, but there is kind of a brass to it. You have to steal yourself for some of the things you might end up seeing um, as a person who would be in the room for an autopsy. doesn't matter what, what level of education or what your title is. If you are going to be walking into a morgue at any point in your life, you kind of have to be able to look at the situation and realize what your role is in that situation, that you are trying to find justice for the person who is on that slab, if that is indeed the case, or if you're just pronouncing, uh, like for a coroner, uh, which is just pronouncing death. And then of course, if there is a questionable death, that's when you would call in the forensics team or you would call in other specialists and they would look even farther. Um, so the, the coroner, which is an elected official, I would say is much more lighthearted, a little bit more easygoing. Um, not to say that they don't also have to have the same sort of, you know, uh, I guess brass balls is the only <laughs> thing I can think of. I don't know if that's a good phrase for it, but it you kind of do have to have, okay, you know, I am doing a role. I'm doing a service to the families of this person and you know, I, I'm playing a part in doing something good that I'm not just, you know, in here because I like it or I think it's cool. You have to kind of place yourself in that position because uh, I can I can tell you after seeing my first uh, it, he, I wouldn't say it was a child, but it was definitely young. Uh, that was that was pretty disturbing to me. And um I I had to admit, I had to excuse myself from the room and come back and I was fine and I was talking with the forensic pathologist who was with me and assisting me and he was just like you know what this happens all the time because you're never really sure what you're going to be seeing um, 
I was told that when I do apply for medical school that I probably shouldn't tell people that my main goal is to go into forensics because they will all look at you funny. Um, <laughs> they they would much rather you just be like, I'm here to be a general practitioner. But um, I have been told that you might not want to be that specific because of the personality types that do end up becoming um you know, people who work in the morgue or people who follow that pathology. It's definitely, it has to be people who are not overwhelmed by lots of details and lots of information and can, you know, organize that information that they're given because a lot of information comes in when there's a questionable death. And so it's not just, okay, let's look at the nitty gritty and the gross anatomy of it because that's, that's a part but it gets much more specific and detail heavy and oriented. So I see a lot of um, people who would be, how do you say, overachievers or <laughs> people who are definitely uh, willing to like almost completely absorb themselves in a job or submerge themselves in a job and just absorb it, take it all in. Um, that is definitely a personality type I've seen. Um, especially for the people who went on into more of the forensics in the FBI. Um, but it's also a super competitive field. And it wasn't until recently that they started wanting, well, I wouldn't say you know, within the last 20 years or so, wanting medical doctors to be coroners and medical examiners. That actually used to be something you could do with just a background in science. And in some small places or small cities and small counties, towns, you might be able to do that even without a degree because it's an elected position. You might be able to just, you know, shadow someone for a certain amount of time and then take over their job. Um, so personality types, uh, it's really hard to put a label on who would be drawn to it. It's, it's definitely competitive. I will say that there's a lot of, um, competition for, you know, FBI positions and detective positions that would be involved in, you know, high profile cases and, you know, murders and the, that type of criminal investigation. A lot of competition. They want the top of the class. They want the people who were straight A's because, I mean, it's, there's so much information. It's, it's easy to actually miss things. So they want people who are extremely detail oriented and they can tend to be slightly neurotic. <laughs> and then the few forensic pathologists that I've met. Oh yeah. They totally fit that, that personality type. They're, they're quirky. They're neurotic. Uh, most of the time their offices aren't neat. They're the kind of people who have organized chaos, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Lots um, of stacks. <laughs> oh yeah. But they know exactly where everything is. Yeah. Like, they would they would be able to find a single piece of paper in a heartbeat. And I want to say in my experience, I've only met three. So the fact that those three at some pretty prestigious uh, colleges, um, yeah, they were they were like that. And they were the ones who kind of counseled me and, as to where I should take my education. And they were just like, yeah, just don't don't tell too many people because I mean, you might be nice, but they're going to look at you differently afterwards. So I'm not sure it's necessarily that the personality of the people who are drawn to it is that certain way, but that there's a stigma mm -hmm. that a lot of people place on it. It might be TV's fault. It could be. <laughs> there's that as well. I mean, and because that is the, the like the kind of quirky or, you know, just sort of somewhat off tech character or corner or whatever. That is a that is a certainly a, 
a TV type that we oh, see yeah. on these shows. So it's interesting to, to think how much of that is fitting you know, with your experience and how much of that, you know, is maybe feeding on this uh, social construct. So that's, that's, that's interesting. Well, I guess, so my last question will be, do you have any other um, shows or characters that you want to mention in either a hall of fame, hall of shame position? Oh, oh, wow. Um, hmm. I, I guess that's the thing too, because I I can separate a little bit so that I can enjoy watching shows like this. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say I'm a really big fan of Bones, even though they were one of the ones that we deconstructed in our classes. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and put CSI in Hall of Shame. I really am not a fan. They mm-hmm. they did a lot of things wrong that really bothered me and made made the show difficult to watch. <laughs> um, but it, I definitely put Hannibal high up there um, with the way that they very meticulously collect evidence and they're very careful about disturbing crime scenes. Um, they take that very seriously in the show. Um, a lot of law and order is very realistic to me. Um, so those would be in, in my hall of fame. And of course, Scully. Scully's my favorite. I'd say Quincy and Scully are my favorite, uh, my favorite forensic pathologist or medical examiners in TV depiction, not, you know, real life, like Dr. G is actually one or Kathy Reichs is actually one. Well, those are some pretty great picks. I'm a fan of them as well. So nice to know that I was on the right track. With yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Ophelia, for coming on the podcast and, and sharing your experiences. Uh, where can our listeners find you and your work online? Well, uh, you can find my work with Eat the Roodcast on uh, eattheroodcast.com. And you can find me at ophelia at gmail.com. And then if you were looking for the aforementioned Kinky Geeks, you can find that at um, kinkygeeks.com. Or sorry, the, the kinkygeeks.com. I should rectify. There's a the in the beginning. <laughs> and then I'm also on Twitter under the Kinky Geeks and also on Twitter um, as Ophelia Tesla. And Eat the Rootcast has a new Tumblr. <laughs> so we're going to do something with that eventually. <laughs> um, but yeah, most of the things that you'll find us on are, are there. Great. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. Oh, 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 oh.